Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, college football finally makes its first ever appearance in the Feats of Strength segment. Then Greg and I share some practical tips for evaluating and interpreting exercise and nutrition research. After that, I present a read of the week segment about the placebo effect of believing that you're on a diet, and Greg discusses training lift variations that are different than your competition lifts. Finally, Greg shares his onion jam recipe, followed by an interview with Alex Colliari-Turner, who tells us about his exciting new research on muscle memory and the effects of steroid use on muscle myonuclei. Remember, if you're interested in participating in Alex's current study, please feel free to email him using the email address in the show description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. I'm your host, Eric Trexler, and today is a treat for the listeners. I've got a special temporary guest co-host, and his name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for coming by. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So um, we are going to jump right into it today, and Greg has a couple excellent feats of strength to share with us. Greg, what do you got? Yeah, so I uh, I decided to keep it brief this week. I know that this segment often tends to run fairly long. Uh, last episode where we did this, it was after uh, Boss of Bosses 6, so there was a lot of stuff to talk about there. Uh, and USAPL Raw Nationals are coming up. I'm sure that there will be a lot to talk about after Raw Nats. Um, so I'm, I'm keeping it pretty brief with just two feats of strength this week. Um so one of which, and I apologize in advance, I know I'm going to butcher her name, forgive me, I'm American, we don't know how other languages work, uh, but Anna Rosa, I think that would be pronounced Castellan, it's C-A-S-T-E-L-L-A-I-N, uh, and I think the L-L would make a Y-ish sound, whatever. Anyway, um, so Argentine. Argentinian female lifter um, competed on back-to-back weekends and set the IPF world records for the total, uh, both raw and equipped. <laughs> which um, th- there have been, there there have been in recent memory several lifters who have had crossover success competing both raw and equipped. Uh, I know Blaine Sumner was the best or one of the best raw and equipped super heavies in the world for a while um, before Ray Williams came up and then he started focusing only on single ply. Uh, There have been several others as well. We had Natalie Hansen on the podcast. Um, She had a lot of success, both raw and equipped, but again is now mostly doing equipped. Brett Gibbs has had success with both. Um, And so I, I don't think this is totally unprecedented. I don't think it's unprecedented for one person to hold both the raw and equipped world records in a single weight class at one time. But the fact that they were set on back-to-back weekends is super, super impressive. Um, Just because, you know, the training required for both is a little bit different. You're you're not going to be working in gear if you're training for a raw meet. uh, And you probably aren't going to be doing a a huge, huge volume of raw training if you're getting equipped or if you're getting prepared for a single ply meet because that equip training is going to take a lot out of you. Um, so setting both both of those world records on back-to-back weekends, any world record's impressive. The circumstances under which these were set make them even more impressive. Um, it should be noted the way that world records work for the IPF 
is you have to basically be competing in a meet that is big enough and prestigious enough to set world records. So there can be situations where like a federation's national record may be higher than the IPF world record. And so it, it should be noted that uh, Kelsey McCarthy, who's a USAPL lifter, um, has hit a higher total in that weight class. She's totaled 680. Um, and so the next time she can compete at a world meet where, or at a meet where world records can be set, um, it, it's likely that this single ply record is going to be taken. But for the time being, uh, one lifter taking down both the raw and equipped records in her weight class on back-to-back weekends, absolutely insane. That is feat of strength number one. Number two, uh, this is kind of a collective feat of strength award, um, but it's going to go to the Wisconsin Badgers offensive and defensive lines. Uh, not recent or not too long ago, they uh, played against a particular team up north absolutely manhandled them on both sides of the ball, made them look like the kind of second-tier program we've known they are all along. (laughs) Um, So anyway, looks like a good season for Ohio State due to that. Uh, Looking forward to the game. Looking like a good season for Wisconsin. They're big boys up front. Linemen don't get the the credit they deserve oftentimes, but man, uh, Wisconsin's offensive and defensive lines just just embarrassed a particular team up north and you really love to see it it was wild i mean uh so obviously wisconsin has a tremendous running back no question but there was this one run that uh you know everyone's going on and on about oh god this this running back is so good and they replay the run and while he's like a few yards away from the line of scrimmage you cannot find a defender on the television screen and it was like a wide angle shot (laughs) like the blocking and then obviously the defense just not being being in the right place. Um, I mean, all all day, um, Wisconsin's running backs, even when their star running back was out with a, a brief injury, no matter who was running the ball, was getting to the place they wanted to be at with very minimal effort. Uh, the What their offensive line was doing was really incredible to watch. And Michigan's quarterbacks were just getting pushed around all day. Yeah. And that's quarterbacks with an S, which is never a good sign. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, those those are the feats of strength for the week. And uh, let's, let's move on to other stuff. Again, keeping in mind, probably next episode, uh, feats of strength will probably run a little bit longer because I, I've seen how some people's training for, for Raw Nationals has been going. And uh, I, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about coming out of that meet. Yeah, people are looking very, very strong. It's going to be pretty wild. So as you would imagine, uh, if you're listening, Greg and I spend a decent amount of time talking to each other about recent research papers, either because we're reviewing them for the podcast or for Stronger by Science or for Mass. And so, yeah, we spend a lot of time just kind of saying, hey, what do you think of this one? What do you think of that one? And so uh, the other day we were looking at a paper that caught our attention and it kind of got us on a discussion that we thought was well suited for the podcast. And the premise of where the conversation started was looking at a paper in the discussion. There's a lot of discussion about these like pretty favorable results. But then when you look at the results section, you're like, eh, these ain't that favorable. And so there's kind of a mismatch between what the results of the actual study itself showed and then what the 
authors wished to speak about in the discussion and kind of the general conclusions that were reached. And it kind of got us on this conversation of, you know, if you're reading research or if you're even reading a fitness professional's interpretation of some research, you know, how much stock really should go into the text that's taken from an introduction, a discussion, or even even a conclusion section? Yeah, so I, I think... I think most people know at this point that it's probably not a great idea to uh, to just rely on the abstract to you know draw inferences about what a paper is saying. Uh, oftentimes, I mean, abstracts are two hundred and fifty words. The paper might be three thousand words. It's it's hard to fully summarize a paper in that few words. You're probably going to miss key details, and so you know I, I think most people realize that. If you really want to get an idea of what the paper is actually saying, how the study was actually conducted, you should probably pull up the full text. But then in actually talking to people about how they read papers, um, I think academic folks and like lay audiences who try to read science tend to approach papers very, very differently. So essentially, like papers are going to have... Uh, four or five main sections. It's going to start with an introduction, then get on to the method section, then the results section, then the discussion section, and sometimes there's a conclusion section or sometimes the conclusion is just kind of the end of the discussion. And the way most papers are written is the introduction is going to be written, you know, probably with some level of jargon and an annoying amount of passive voice but using words and languages and like grammatical structures that are going to be, you know, pretty understandable to a lay audience. Um, generally the same thing for the discussion as well. If it's, you know, like really, really nitty gritty, uh, like cellular physiology or biochem stuff, discussion section may still be pretty Greek to you. But for the most part, like exercise and sports science papers, uh, the discussion section is going to be pretty easy to read as well. Um, but then if you look at the method sections, like, you know, maybe there's... The phrase, you, do you say pretty Greek to you? Yeah. We get a lot of questions from Greek people. So um, what what he's saying there, uh, out of great respect for your culture, I think that's a phrase that it's unrecognizable. Yeah, there's... Uh, I feel like we get about six questions a week from people with Greek last names. So I want to get out ahead of this. None of which we pronounce correctly. <laughs> no, we ruin but, it every but time. Yeah, there, there's a saying in America, it's all Greek to me. Meaning, you know, you have no idea what it's saying because basically no Americans speak, speak Greek. <laughs> no, but we do love your culture. <laughs> yes. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah. So then when you get into the method section, you know, maybe there's particular like measurements taken that you don't really know what they mean. The section is certainly much more dry. Um, when you get into the like stats part at the end of the method section, if you don't have a stats background, none of that may make any sense whatsoever to you. Uh, and sometimes if you do know a little bit about stats, it also doesn't make sense to you, but just because <laughs> the stats they used are dumb, uh, not because you don't know what they're literally saying. <laughs> That's actually a true story. So Greg, you messaged me last night, a quote from a stat section. I literally looked at it three times. I was like, what the hell are they saying? Yeah. What happened here? Yeah. Uh, and then the result section itself probably isn't going to be as hard to get through as the method section. Um, but it's still going to be challenging because... You know, they'll usually give like 
a plain text summary of what they found, but oftentimes that's interspersed with, you know, the the results of multiple statistical tests in parentheses where you may not know what those, you know, figures and characters mean. Um, so, you know, the the method section is probably the hardest section to, to read thoroughly and understand. Results section, a little bit easier, but still can be a slog to get through. But introduction and discussion and a conclusion section, if if the journal allows for it, those are those are pretty easy reading. And so a lot of people, when they first get into reading research, those are the sections they focus on. You know, they'll read the introduction, maybe skim the methods, but probably just skip the methods. Um, maybe read the results, but probably just look at tables and figures. <laughs> um, and then read the discussion. And, you know, like the authors, the people doing the research are probably experts in the area where they're doing the research. So you're thinking, you know, I'm a lay person. I don't have an academic background. Here's how they're they're interpreting their results. Their interpretation's probably better than mine because they have more expertise here. And so you just kind of rely on the author's interpretations of what they found in the discussion section um, instead of actually reading the methods and, and results yourself. Um, and so I, I think that that, that um, is certainly understandable, but can get you into trouble sometimes. Definitely. I mean, as you're going through, um, you know, it, it's very appealing to say, oh, I'll just kind of read through the discussion and take it uh, as it's given to me, just take it as, as, as factually written. And I think a lot of people... Um, tend to underestimate the degree to which there can be a little bit of editorializing in the discussion. And there can often be, uh, we got a question in the mass, uh, in the mass group the other day that was saying like, Hey, I found this in a, dis in a discussion. I think it was in like, here, here's a statement with a reference. It seems as though they totally misrepresented this reference. <laughs> and, and the answer was, I didn't, I didn't even look into it, but it looks like the consensus was basically like, yeah, they, they kind of did. Um, well, I mean, that happened in one of my mass articles for this month. Um, the the paper I was looking at that was like the quasi-meta-analysis looking at the magnitude of the placebo effect, the reference they dropped in for the EPO placebo didn't relate at all to, to EPO. Like, I searched it up, I pulled up the full text, read the whole thing thoroughly, and I'm like, they don't mention EPO at all in here. Um, so yeah, like, I mean, completely incorrect references get dropped in all the time. Yeah. You, you'll find a couple instances. Sometimes it'll be just like somebody used like a referencing software that just messed up. And it's mm -hmm. like that, that is not what you intended to cite. And sometimes it'll be someone who's taking an extremely liberal approach to what the paper really showed. Right. You know, they'll, they'll take the one little grain of it that kind of supports what they're getting at and leave the rest that happens to completely uh, counter that. And so, the, you know, somebody was like, hey, I, this looks like a pretty, pretty critical oversight in this discussion here. And I think a lot of people underestimate, uh, I'm not saying it's good, but I am saying it's common. Uh, I think it happens a lot more than a person might expect. And there's a million reasons why that might be, but I would suspect that a lot of reviewers who are generally doing it at five in the morning or, you know, at midnight when their family's like, dude, would you just go to bed? Um, 
I don't think they're all following up every single reference. I don't think that they are policing the discussion and looking for any bit of editorializing. So I do think more often than people would suspect, some of that slips through the cracks in the review process. Um, so it, it's really important when you're, if you're looking at papers and you just like find a quote from the discussion, even though that quote occurred within the peer review literature, it doesn't hold as much weight as the actual data. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you think, like, well, peer-reviewed research is kind of at this elevated level of factualness or truthiness, if I could borrow a term from, uh, like, 2008 Stephen Colbert. Hell yeah. But uh, there are layers within a paper of, like, what is just straight-up data that's, like, assuming it's collected, well, essentially it is now fact, like, this is what happened, versus a slightly editorialized spin on that data, um, which could be reflective of author bias. Uh, and that bias doesn't necessarily have to be nefarious in nature. Mm -hmm. So we bring bias into any study we do because uh, presumably we began with hypothesis. You know what I mean? Like it's a little bit difficult to separate yourself from what you anticipated might happen within a research study. Um, ideally, you would be able to, but you know there are some inherent biases that people bring into it, and then certainly there are nefarious cases in which people are doing it uh, with bad intentions. You know, they're trying to further a point that uh, you know, in many cases, they're they're trying to monetize that point. Correct, I, I think is a safe way to say that. Yeah. And so, unfortunately, I, you hate to say it, but <laughs> sometimes when you read a paper, like you don't want to be like the person who immediately jumps to conspiracy theory. But every now and then I will see a paper where I'll go like, there, there seems to be a mismatch between the results and the discussion mm -hmm. or the results and the conclusions. And then you check the conflict of interest declarations. And in many cases, they'll come out and say like, hey, I've, I've got a conflict of interest here, uh, just so you know. And you say, okay, well, that, that certainly gives me some context uh, through which I can view these statements and I can use some arbitrary form of how much weight I want to put into them. Sometimes conflicts aren't disclosed. And so sometimes I will actually, <laughs> I'll do some digging. If, if I see a discussion, I'm like, what's happening here? I'll look into the, the background of like the lead author or the senior author and see if I can figure out, like, is there actually a conflict here that maybe they don't feel excited about sharing? With yeah, the and, world? and there's not always a conflict. Like, I think that is the first place people's brains go a lot of times. But right. I mean, m most of the time when when a discussion is spun in a particular way, it's either to make, you know, maybe statistically significant results with a small effect size seem large and important or to make null effects that are like maybe almost statistically significant like basically presented in the discussion as if it was significant and meaningful and important um probably just due to to positive publication bias like if you if you have exciting positive findings that's going to be more likely to get published period and certainly more likely to get published uh in a you know prestige high impact journal than the null finding so you know the the spinning of results there doesn't necessarily have to be 
a conflict behind that beyond just, you know, the agenda of I want to get this published and this may be the the most favorable way to present these findings in order to get them published. Like th- that happens all the time, even in the absence of of clear objective conflicts. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, sometimes there are conflicts. Sometimes there are just, you know, some of those implicit pressures of uh, how's this thing going to get published? Um, but yeah, it, it's never a terrible idea if you if you see statements that are strong enough that cause you any any kind of concern of like what's happening here like this this is almost reading like uh like a advertising copy more so than a discussion section that that's when it's maybe not a horrible idea to snoop around and see what you can find you know i i I got sent a paper the other day where i was like this 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 paper's kind of weird i looked into it and like there's just shady stuff all over it so another thing to keep an eye out for, um, again, and this may be due to a conflict of interest or maybe just, you know, a little bit of implicit bias of uh, some ingrained bias of what the researchers believe they know about about the intervention they did. Uh, every now and then you'll see some very selective interpretation of p-values that are not statistically significant but are close. And what I mean by that is every now and then you'll find a paper where, you know, when the p-values are like 0.08 and, you know, the significance level that they selected is 0.05, if it's in the direction they hypothesize, they'll be like, oh, check this out, close enough. But when it's in the other direction, <laughs> that's not what they hypothesized. They're like, well, it's not significant. What do you want me to do? Like, that's not useful information. So if you see that they are leaning very hard one way when they get what what some people might call a trend or a p-value that's, you know, between 0.05 and 0.1, if they're only leaning into that and interpreting it when it supports what they were looking for, that's usually in- indicative that you're maybe getting a slightly a slightly biased interpretation. Again, not necessarily a nefarious interpretation. But it does make you think, okay, so we're giving it a little bit more wiggle room in the interpretation here. Yeah, and and also, if you see that terminology in in a paper, like if you see 0.09 reported as a trend, that's uh, that in, it, in and of itself, in my opinion, is evidence that people are trying to spin it or, or maybe just don't know what they're talking about. Um, because like if you... You can simulate out data, and especially in small sample research, if you get a p-value less than 0.1 but above uh, 0.05, if you kept collecting data with like characteristics that would allow you to get that you know low but not significant p-value with a smaller sample, it's just as likely to trend back towards a p-value of 1 as it is to trend down to a p-value of below 0.05. Uh, it, it's not, it's not a trend. The way that that's often interpreted is, oh, well, we had a small sample. We had 12 people per group, but if we would have had 30, this would have been significant. That's, that's the implication a lot of times, but, um, you, you, you can model that out. It's, it's factually untrue. It's, it's not any more likely that it, that the p-value would have gotten lower as that the p-value would have gotten higher. Yeah, so I actually just this morning was texting uh, one of our coaches, Lauren Colenzo-Semple, about mm-hmm. this. And 
I think we were just both being smart asses. I don't think we actually disagreed about anything, but we were just arguing. <laughs> but we we're talking about the use of the word trend, and she was on your side. I, I have a slightly different view, um, but I don't think we disagree. So with me, I, I've actually worked with statisticians who are straight up biostat, you know, like their their doc their doctoral studies were not in exercise. They were in statistics. Mm-hmm. And they, they like to use the word trend when the p-value is 0.07, 0.08. Um, and like so, in, in, in what context, though? Because the thing is, like, it it depends, and, and we're getting way off topic now, but it, it kind of, so again, you can model this out, and it's going to depend on what size sample you're working with. And so, like, in our field, it's almost always small sample research. And, like, 0.08 or, like, 0.09 or whatever if you have a sample of like 10 people per group, again, you can model this out and that's not any more likely to go below 0.05 as it is to go back towards one. If it's like 0.07, 0.06 or whatever, and it, and you're already dealing with a sample of like 60 people per group, then yes, it, it is then at that point more likely to keep trending down. Yeah, so all I'm saying is that it's it's terminology that has kind of entered the space now and i actually it's not that i disagree it's just that i'm more focused on how it's presented so whether you say oh here's a trend or here is a p value that is below 0.10 that i wish to further investigate or evaluate mm-hmm. in an exploratory manner T- to me it's more what do you do with it not did you use the t word or not yeah i mean i'm because I, I agree, the the T word you I, I'm hung up on the literal connotations of the word trend. Lauren is too. Yeah. Okay. Good, so good for her. Yeah. Well, not we, not really. We that. we've been discussing on Instagram, uh, possibly starting our own podcast. If you uh, if you if you don't promote me to permanent guest host or co host, um, well, and so you... and so now at this point we may have we may have grounds to do that on, um. We we agree about the T word, and you're a fucking fraud. Yeah. Well, good. First of all, good luck with your your new biostats podcast. I'm sure everyone's <laughs> gonna love that. <laughs> and second of all, uh, check your non compete clause because that's gonna make your life very stressful. Trust me. Um, <laughs> but but in any case, I'm more concerned about are you using that to very forcefully say, oh, see, yeah, we found what we wanted. Or are you using it to say, to like give an actual thorough investigation? Like, so for instance, you've got three different measurements that are all like hypertrophy measurements. One of them is a quote unquote trend. The other two are just clearly non-significant. Are you grasping at that to say like, oh yeah, there is a hypertrophy benefit here. Or are you saying, oh, okay, well, based on the evidence available, that's probably nothing to get too excited about. Yeah, yeah. Or let's look at the actual magnitude of that effect. Mm -hmm. If it was you know, a quote unquote trend and the size of the effect was super small anyway, then again, who cares? So I, I'm more interested in how people use it after they put whatever label they want on it. No, yeah, for sense. sure. I mean, it's it, it's two entirely different things. If, you know, let's say you have three measures, you have like lower body lean mass, you have vastus lateralis cross-sectional area, and you have fiber cross-sectional area. And let's say, you know, lower body lean mass, it kind of leans in one direction, p-value 0.07 or whatever. And the other two measures, you know, 
equivalent high P values. Like it doesn't really seem like anything was going on. And then in the discussion section, you say, oh, but look at that lower body lean mass. This group clearly grew a lot more than the other group versus, you know, if uh, like lower body lean mass was like 0.07 in one direction, but then you look at cross-sectional area and fiber cross-sectional area, and they're both significant in the same direction, then you can probably look at the not quite significant p-value of lower body lean mass, and you're like, well, okay, this is a slightly less precise measure. We see similar findings in quasi-equivalent measures in the same study. So that probably was trending to be significant. Like those those are, are two different situations. Yeah. So without getting super, super far into the details on, on stat talk here, um, yeah, just basically try to look for whether or not they're being an honest broker of w- when they're using that that T word, the, the word trend. Um, is it because they're trying to spin something or is it because they're saying, oh, here's a pattern in the data that warrants some degree of examination cautiously? And I, I think, like I was saying, I think you, me, and Lauren all agree on that. It's just a matter of terminology at that point. Fair enough. Um, Another thing you might find is people making conclusions in a paper about constructs that weren't actually measured. Oh my God, yes. Yeah, so you know, you, you'll see a paper that's about EMG or something, and then the whole discussion is about hypertrophy. And mm-hmm. you're like, ooh, okay. Um, you'll see something about short-term muscle protein synthesis rates. And again, it's all you know very forceful conclusions about hypertrophy, which was better or worse for it. Um, same thing with fat oxidation and like long-term loss of fat mass and the same thing with somebody doing like a submax vo2 test and saying oh this is going to help an elite runner win a race Mm -hmm. um now i i will give a little bit like the reason that all these things happen is because there is some small place for related things to occur in research in many cases not all of these examples but like for this if you're doing a study about muscle protein synthesis rates theoretically you might have an interest in either the accretion or maintenance of muscle tissue yeah like so it it makes sense why they would broach the topic um but it's all about being very cautious in their language of what exactly did your study show and what are you what are you speculating could be potential uh avenues for further investigation yeah and and i i think it also depends so like varying acute proxy measures to kind of extrapolate that into what are likely to be long-term differences there there's varying degrees to which that may or may not be justified so for example if you look at acute muscle protein synthesis and it's with an untrained population um, we have we have pretty clear data showing that uh, if you if you look at acute muscle protein synthesis data in an untrained population and then have them train and then look to see how like that acute session one muscle protein synthesis correlates with long-term results. Not that good. Like there's not much of a relationship there, but if it's muscle protein synthesis data on trained lifters who are probably going to experience less, uh, less muscle damage, then you do see correlations between acute muscle protein synthesis data and long-term results. So, for example, if it was a study looking at acute MPS after, you know, some uh, some training intervention or whatever, like some new training idea, uh, and one group did better than the other, 
you you still can't make a one-to-one recommendation to say like we know that these differences in muscle protein synthesis are necessarily going to lead to long-term differences in hyper in hypertrophy but it's not completely unjustified to suggest that there might be a difference whereas if you did the same study with untrained subjects and then tried to make the implication of oh this is probably going to lead to long-term differences in hypertrophy that's much much less justified because we know that that proxy measure doesn't correlate well with long-term results um same stuff with or same thing with emg um one of so for a long long time and and this has changed a lot in the last three or four years where you know the the ideas of the field are but for a long time uh you would see it argued in the literature that you needed high load training so above 60 percent one rep max to cause robust hypertrophy Uh, and, and there were several reasons people argued that one of the reasons they could argue it is there wasn't much long term data actually comparing hypertrophy after high and low load training um but one of the like kind of mechanistic i guess reasons that people would argue that is they were like look dude we take a set to failure at 80 percent one rep max we take a set to failure at 30 percent one rep max emg all throughout the set and certainly near the point of failure just the whole thing emg is higher at 80 percent one rep max it's recruiting more motor units that's going to lead to more growth um and that one reflects some level of ignorance about what EMG is actually measuring. And then two, that just hasn't panned out in the actual longitudinal evidence. Um, we, we still to this day see higher EMG throughout an entire set, including at the point of failure with higher load training. Yet when we you know put people on high load versus low load training programs, you know, over 10, 12 weeks, we see similar muscle growth. So you see people um you know trying to draw a direct one-to-one line between emg hypertrophy you see that less now than you used to but you still occasionally see that um and especially when you're dealing with differences in loading we know that's incredibly unjustified but you'll, you'll still see people trying to you know extrapolate that acute proxy measure to make inferences about like the long-term outcome people actually care about, which is hypertrophy. Yeah. So it's, it's tricky because every time I find myself talking about how people can kind of arm themselves with a skill set to keep themselves out of trouble with misinterpreting research. One of the things that I struggle with is it, it often does come down to certain aspects where it's like, you kind of just got to, you kind of have to have knowledge in the area, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so especially when it comes to statistics or making the determination of whether or not that acute proxy measurement actually does give you license to essentially extrapolate to other outcomes, there is some degree of knowledge that's kind of required there, which is kind of an unfortunate reality of like, you, you got to do a little bit of digging sometimes and it really helps. We've mentioned several times on the, on the show, like dig into a textbook for sure get a feeling for the for the basic kind of theory underlying it and then that'll equip you to kind of start weeding through some research and and, and figuring things out um but it is funny because in in the process of talking about the stuff you and i <laughs> kind of admitted to our very radical ideas of what we thought uh <laughs> intro and discussion sections should actually look like in papers because <laughs> i i think we're just so annoyed of just every now and then you do get that paper that's so editorialized it's like if you were just going to share a bunch of opinions why'd you bother collecting data 
right <laughs> you yeah. know like if, if the data wasn't going to inform your conclusion why bother just just write a narrative review and get it published in a journal where you know the editor shares your biases exactly which yeah that's a whole different thing but yeah so like so like i admitted like that for several years uh, my grad school colleagues can attest to this i was probably just annoyed of how much writing i was doing or something but i was like an intro should be three to five bullet points and a discussion should be a paragraph like that if you can't do it in that much then you know think harder and uh your idea was that discussion should basically be like a miniaturized systematic review which is interesting yeah i mean i I think it should go one of two different directions so i i think i think the value of a good discussion section is it helps contextualize the findings of a study um you know within the body of literature that it will fall in and so like i i agree that if you're if i think something would probably it would be good if something was done to minimize spin and you can't really, it's hard to spin bullet points. You can't really develop, uh, a, a, you know, train of argumentation in the span of like five bullet points to convince people of your particular spin. Um, but, but something else I think could help as well is like, especially if, if people are doing a study in an area where maybe there's, you know, 20 or 30 st- studies published already, one of the ways that you can kind of frame your results is in in terms of the other research you cite to say like oh here are a few papers that found similar results here are a few papers that found different results and you know it, it's hard to accuse someone of selective reporting and like cherry picking references if you know there's it's it's a journal with a word count and you can't realistically discuss the 30 different studies in the area um, so, you know, you pick out four or five that you deem to be representative and you can selectively choose those four or five that you talk about to compare your results to. And it may be like, you know, a few high quality studies that agree with your paper and maybe like a few low quality studies that don't. And you can be like, well, well, when we look at these handful of papers, it seems like all the good ones are leaning my direction and like yeah. some of the bad ones are le- are leaning the other direction w- when that may not at all be an accurate view of that body of literature. Um, so I think that like after going through the process of, of writing a, a thesis, I, it was annoying as hell, but it, it forced me to, you know, not, not read my biases into the literature on the subject. Cause it's like, I got to do a systematic search. The two specific endpoints in my research that I care about, I need to pull up, read, and summarize every single paper in the area. And so, like, you know, then if I did try to spin the discussion, people could just refer back to the previous section of my thesis and be like, dude, no, like, there's eight papers here that are disagreeing with you, and you're not considering them at all when you're discussing your findings. So, so I think, um, I think if like a discussion was kind of supposed to be a a quasi systematic overview of all of the research and that was just the expectation, um, I think that that would, would help reduce spin one. And then also (laughs) I think a fringe benefit would be, uh, a lot of times like the same study will get done like 45 different times because, for whatever reason, journals publish it every single time. So we've mentioned on on the podcast before, like the early creatine research, it was all like, 
you know, we're, we're going to do three sets to failure on bench press. Does creatine help? We're going to do four sets to failure on knee extensions. Does creatine help? And it was like that for 50 fucking studies. In 18 to 22 year old males. Right. And it was like, did you really need to do this study for the 20th time? Well, Greg, now we know. Well, it, no, but, but <laughs> just kidding. what I'm saying is like, you know, four or five rep- replication attempts. That's great. I'm all for that. <laughs> but if you were forced to do like, you know, basically a systematic review for your discussion, by the time you, you have like 20 prior papers doing the exact same study, you're going to be like, I don't want to do this fucking study again because I don't want to write the discussion section, you know? Exactly. As, <laughs> as a person who did a creatine study that featured repetitions to fatigue as an outcome, I am personally hurt and offended and shocked. <laughs> okay. So um, I will add one thing here. If, you're, if you listen to that discussion, you said, hey, all of this critically reading research stuff sounds like a lot of work. I wish I could pay somebody to do it for me. You could always subscribe to Mass. You're excellent, not wrong. Excellent, excellent service. So yeah, just to summarize this discussion we've been having, uh, to to bring us back to where we started, absolutely a million percent, if you want to know what a study is saying, read beyond the abstract. But also, when you pull up that paper, start with the methods and results section. Uh, Read those sections, see if, oh, do these methods make sense? Are there big holes here? What are the results? What are they literally saying? And then, you know, try to draw some of your own conclusions and inferences and then go back and read the introduction and discussion. See how, you know, the the inferences you draw maybe are the same as the authors or maybe differ from the authors. And if they differ, look to see like, you know, are, are my interpretations a better literal you know, representation of what this study found and are the author spinning this or, you know, maybe it differs because you missed something and the authors actually did the study and their interpretation is better. But at minimum, you can see if there's possibly a conflict between what the paper actually found and how those results are represented in the discussion section. Um, And I, I think that that's going to help you get a better understanding of the research itself and to, to start being able to rely on your own reading and, and not so much just, you know, purely pulling up a paper and relying on the authors to accurately represent everything all the time. Absolutely. Now, I know li- the listeners have gotten more than their fair share of research and methods already. Um, we are going to get into some very practical lifting tips in a coach's corner segment. But before we do that, I do want to share one more interesting uh, segment. It was going to be a research review, but I, after reading the paper, I called an audible, um, and it's been demoted to a read of the week. <laughs> 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 so uh, the read of the week is basically like a paper or, or really any work of, of written text where you say, ah, oh, huh, look at that. And so it's a paper that basically... What a lot of people were kind of sharing about it or what seemed to be the buzz in the public was um, this idea that if you did a study and you put two people on the same diet or two groups, you told one group, hey, this is just a normal weight maintenance diet, but you told the other group, this is a weight loss diet. Basically, you placebo them on the same diet that there was way more weight loss in the placebo group. And 
turns out there, there's a little bit more to that study than meets the eye. There are some very key details to keep in mind, uh, which I wanted to bring people's attention to so that they don't uh, get too excited about this concept of just placeboing people into weight loss. The study is called Studying a Possible Placebo Effect of an Imaginary Low-Calorie Diet. And I was like, now this is interesting. You know, I, I, you see that on the page, you look at the abstract, you see the results, and you say, I got to dive into this thing to figure out what the heck just happened. And uh, what, you, what you find is that this is absolutely a psychology study and absolutely not a nutrition study. <laughs> and so that doesn't mean that, that it's not a valuable thing. It doesn't mean that there's not interesting insight to be uh, gleaned from it. But if you're anything like me and you're thinking, well, how did this work? What are, how do we kind of follow this trail and figure out where the calories went awry in terms of the calories in, calories out balance? There's just not enough information in the paper to actually comb through that. So um, very briefly, the, the, the idea here was to, to give two different groups to put both of them at, at energy balance. But to tell one of the groups, hey, you're in a big calorie deficit, and to just see how that would respond uh, or how they would respond in terms of body composition outcomes. And so what they did was they told the gr one group, hey, you're at a uh, energy balance. Um, you know, you're you should generally just be weight stable throughout the intervention. The other group, they said that every week you're at a 5,500 calorie deficit which uh, in the paper they said this should have theoretically caused them to lose about six kilograms in the eight-week study. Um, they talk a little bit about the, um, you know, eat, the diets were supposed to be 55, 60% carbohydrates, blah, 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 down the line. And they also had supervised training, pro, um, train, uh, supervised workouts, and that the, the workouts cumulative, cumulatively should have burned about 750 to 900 calories per week. Um, so that all sounds like it's going to go pretty well. Um, but you start looking into the paper and there's just not nearly enough uh, actual data provided. Now, in terms of the results, the results are wild. So um, the placebo group went from 106 kilos to about 103. So they lost like three kilos over this eight week uh, period. The experimental group went from 113 kilos to 104 that's a meaningful amount of, of weight loss. Like that's a really big amount of weight loss. But so w when I saw this, I was thinking like, oh, so you saw the title of the, uh, of the paper and I figured the most straightforward way to do that would be to provide the meals for people. Mm -hmm. And so then they, they really just don't know exactly how many calories went into the whole thing. But in reality, they just kind of had this weird kind of semi-guided structure where they just met with a dietitian every couple weeks, talked about how things went um, you know, th there's all sorts of stuff in here that you just wish there was more information. They didn't really talk about their pre-study training status as it pertains to resistance training. So it's hard to factor in how changes in lean mass might have been affecting things. Um, you know, were some people new to lifting and some people had been lifting. There, there just wasn't any information at all about that. Um, they didn't ask them to report food logs. There's no quantifiable measurement of how much food people either ate or at least approximately what they thought they ate. Um, there's, there's just no numbers in terms of how many calories or what macros people consumed. Um, 
there uh there was no quantifiable um, measurement of adherence they just said like yeah you know the dietitian said a few people slipped up but what are you going to do the stats were weird they shouldn't have been weird it was a very straightforward design <laughs> there's no reason the stats should have been weird but they were um so <laughs> there were two groups and they compared baseline values using a one by two anova why good question and then they rather than just doing like a two by two anova you know, two groups, two time points, pre and post. Then they just did within group T tests for the pre to post changes within each group. So the stats should have been very straightforward. They were very much not straightforward, which whenever I see that makes me really concerned about proficiency. Yeah, I mean, best case scenario there, they don't know what they're doing. Worst case, they're trying to get something over on you. Right, but the thing is, that difference was huge. There was no amount. <laughs> you didn't need any trickery. Yeah. I yeah. mean, the difference between groups was enormous. There's there's no way that's not a significant interaction, right? I mean, it's a small sample. Maybe they wanted to hedge the bet, but I just, yeah. Whenever I see really straightforward protocols that result in really not straightforward stats, that, that to me is always just not great. Um. A couple, a couple other things. So they measured body composition via single frequency BIA, which those are numbers that like if a client were to ask me, hey, I'm thinking about using single frequency BIA, I would say, please don't do that. Please just don't bother because whatever number you're getting from that, I have no confidence in mm -hmm. whatsoever. Um, you know, the, a couple quotes, the study protocol lacked any mechanisms for controlling the adherence to the diet plan. It was possible that some overenthusiastic participants had been periodically undereating and/or had increased their routine daily physical activity. Um, another thing was that they talked a little bit about how the dietitian reported some people deviated from the diet, and they said, you know, basically, don't worry. The participants were experienced in dieting and calculating energy values of different foods, and in most occasions, successfully maintained their calorie intakes almost unchanged. So. It, it's hard to kind of indicate that these people were placeboed into thinking they were on some really extreme caloric deficit if they really were experienced and educated enough to to do that, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it's kind of like a catch-22, right? Because, like, either they're not experienced with tracking calories and macros they have no idea what they're doing and they probably fucked it up because they weren't given their meals. Or if they're as good at this stuff as you say they are and they were already tracking their nutrition and you can say in most cases calorie intakes were unchanged, that means that they already knew their baseline calories. And you're right. Like you couldn't placebo someone under that circumstance. Right. Like there, there's there's no way to spin that information in a way that makes sense. Right. So... That was the kind of the, the the main theme, and I don't want to be hypercritical. Um, this was more a psychology paper than a nutrition paper. So if you read it as a nutrition paper, um, you end up at a lot of dead ends and saying, "Where's the information that I'm looking for?" So if if you were looking at this as like, "Oh, maybe I'm gonna, maybe this is gonna really influence the way I view dieting or the way I view nutrition from a physiology perspective," it's not gonna do that. Um, if you read it, you're probably going to leave with more questions than you came in with. I'm not really super well trained in the area of psychology. And when I say that, what I really mean is I have no training at all. So 
you know, I'm I'm not really in the business of carefully critiquing psych studies, but even I think the, the Dude, you you don't you don't psychology away nine kilos. Right. Like yeah. that's that's what it comes down to for me. Yeah. And and another thing is <laughs> those those carbon atoms left their body and it wasn't through their brains. Another thing that that trips me up with this is like man if only it were that easy. You just tell somebody, "Hey, guess what? You're dieting now." Boom. What was it? 9 kilos? Yeah. Ask anyone that's ever dieted. That is not how it works. So, I think what really happened if if you want to like dig behind the psychology here, I think what they told these people was you're in the weight loss group and you're going to get measured in 8 weeks. And I bet they they just were like, "Oh crap, so, something's going wrong here." I'm in the weight loss group. I'm not losing any weight. They probably just deviated from stuff. Yeah, like I, it's it's got to be as simple as that, right? I mean, no, no, you, no one's ever lied to a dietitian, so I feel like that uh, that possibility is completely out the window. And you're a conspiracy theorist for even suggesting it. Correct. Yeah, but I will say this: the psychology of knowing you're going to be measured later is powerful Mm -hmm. i think that's the really interesting thing here not the placebo effect i think the really interesting psychology again from a non-psychologist with no expertise is these people had skin in the game and knew they were going to be accountable for it in eight weeks and they're like i gotta make this happen Mm -hmm. i think that's really what happened but um there is some kind of fascination that we tend to have with any anytime we see a paper in the nutrition and fitness world where we believe that calories in, calories out broke down somehow. Whenever we feel like there's some aberration and it didn't work this time, I feel like people gravitate toward that, which is why I think people saw this and said, wait a minute, they told them they're on the diet, but everything was constant and they lost weight. Like, And every time it's just like this, it's some sort of like poorly controlled monstrosity. Right. So any time that calories in, calories out seems to be vulnerable, people are like, oh, wow, what's happening here? And it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of times whenever you see any kind of like sometimes people get really theoretical about like if you do carnivore or keto or fasting, there's some magic happening that completely defies calories in, calories out. And I think that's why people tend to really get super enthusiastic about those topics but um the thing about calories in calories out is we view it as an equation with two inputs Mm -hmm. calories in and calories out that's uh slightly over (laughs) oversimplified uh mathematically and whenever somebody uh brings up a study like that like any any kind of study that seems to indicate that calories in calorie out calories out has been threatened in some way or has failed us in some way i send them to this paper by kevin hall and uh, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes but uh, the paper is called predicting metabolic adaptation body weight change and energy intake in humans uh, it was published in 2010 kevin hall's like the lead nutrition researcher at the national institutes of health and if you just go to the appendix of that study, don't even read the study. You can so, read it if so you So when, when you're reading this paper, are you accounting for the fact that it's government propaganda? Um, I'm just taking them at their word. Ooh. I know. Big mistake. Ooh. Um, but 
if you just go to the appendix, so Kevin Hall, this is basically Kevin Hall trying to model calories in, calories out, I think is like an oversimplified view of what this paper is. The appendix contains 67 equations that collectively inform this concept of calories in, calories out, and how the body responds uh, to various exercise and nutrition inputs. So there's a lot going on there. I, I mean, so one thing I'll say is I think that, um, so not with this particular paper, like not the Kevin Hall paper or the the placebo diet paper you were just talking about, but I think that just in general, the the biggest place where people get it twisted when they're thinking calories in, calories out, and and we've talked about this on the podcast before with the concept of metabolic adaptation, but whether or not they realize it, they're operating with the assumption that calories out is a constant term. Yeah. And so like if I, or the only thing that that's variable about it is exercise. So they think like, you know, if I change my calorie intake and the amount of cardio I do to these degrees, then I will get this level of predictable weight loss. Like they, I mean, the, the thing that this whole paper does really well is if you can actually make it through all of the math it you can't well you can't <laughs> <laughs> i'm just messing with you but it it shows you how variable all of that is so like rather than thinking of non-exercise calories out is a constant term that you know, will always predictably be exactly the same as it is today. Like that is something that's highly variable. And I, I think in most instances where people think calories in, calories out has broken down, it's just like calories out has changed and they think that that's completely inconceivable. Yeah. I, people underestimate how much error is associated with their estimation of the calories in part. Um, so I think people read a, a food label as if it is a perfect value with 100% reliability. I think people underestimate how much error is in their intake tracking, even if they're pretty good at doing it. And yeah, I think people don't realize the very heavy math that goes into the calories out part. And so like you see in this Kevin Hall paper, there are terms to deal with de novo lipogenesis, um, gluconeogenesis all sorts of metabolic uh, ketone formation, all sorts of metabolic fates of the various things you're putting in your body that in some way are being metabolized in a way that affects essentially all aspects of the calories in and calories out equation. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's just kind of like a, a thing to get off my chest is like every time someone's like, well, how do you explain this? Their calories were the same, but this group lost more. And it's like, well, I don't know. Let's look at which of these 67 equations might have been influenced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's not like, a, it's not hyperbole. It's literally just look in these and see if you find any relevant terms. And I promise you will. Yeah. I mean, so one other thing that this reminds me of, and I won't, I won't tell the listeners the, co the context in which we were initially having this discussion, but occasionally you see some stuff in the research where, the really, really well-controlled studies say one thing, and the really, really poorly controlled or basically uncontrolled studies say something else. I'm, I'm going to give you a little hint here. 
you're generally better off going with what the really well-controlled studies are saying. And, <laughs> yeah. and so, like, in this case, people can make whatever arguments they want against the calories in, calories out model. But it, sh- it sure is incredibly convenient that when you put folks in metabolic wards, you know everything they're eating. You, you know, you're tracking calories out very rigorously. I mean, th- thus far, the calories in, calories out model is undefeated. Like it, but it, only in those scenarios. Yeah, it, it seems to work incredibly well when you're actually controlling everything, and then as soon as the controls start, you know, relaxing a little bit, you can find some papers where it looks like, ooh, looks like looks like Kiko is on the ropes. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's like, well, I mean, what's the more likely thing? Like this model that performs incredibly well under circumstances where we can monitor everything just suddenly stops working as soon as we throw it out into the world or maybe humans tracked something wrong or didn't adhere perfectly to their diet or whatever. Yeah. So at that point you just teach it as a controversy, right? (laughs) Maybe physics broke. Just teach the controversy, baby. Hell yeah. It's either that physics broke or that um, maybe there was some instance in which it wasn't perfectly controlled outside of the lab. Um, now, I do want to I want to reiterate the the paper I was talking about with the placebo effect on dieting. Again, I'm not trying to disparage that author. I'm sure it was a you know an honest effort at looking at an interesting psychological premise. Um, but I, I think it was an instance of someone who doesn't tr- typically do diet you know nutrition heavy research kind of dipping their toes into that area, which is why a lot of the things that you might be looking for in the paper don't seem to be there. And that's totally okay. Um, And hopefully they'll continue following up on how people react to their diet and exercise behaviors when they know they're on the hook for weight loss. Um, Because again, I still think there's interesting stuff to be gleaned from it. Um, I just hope that next time they do a two by two ANOVA. That's my honest thing that I can't get past, but (laughs) I'm working on it. Okay, so I mentioned we had a Coach's Corner segment coming up, and this one kind of started in the gym with us. We, we, were, uh, uh, we were doing some bench press, and I had mentioned to Greg uh, that I, I tend to, ban- to bench with a super flat back, um, and I, I know I could get a few more pounds out of it if I really tweaked my, my form, got an arch, kind of set up more like a power lifter, but I was like, you know what? This just grows the hell out of my pecs. It feels good. My shoulders like it, so I roll with it. And it kind of got us on a discussion about um, lifts that we use for training versus lifts that we use for competing. And even with the same lift, when when you sometimes train with a slightly different setup or technique than what you compete with. Um, so, so Greg, do you mind telling the listeners kind of your experience with the concept? Yeah, so th- this isn't a new idea at all. Um, I- I'm sure it predates even him, but I know uh, Fred Hatfield, Dr. Squat, was a, uh, a proponent of this concept. Um, so he he did uh, Hatfield squats, obviously, which may have been him trying to sell something. You never know. Uh, but he another thing he advocated for was doing like high bar deeper than competition standard, like Olympic style squats in the off season as a way to build general squat strength and maybe, you know, grow your quads a little bit more. And then, you know, he competed the same way virtually all powerlifters compete, like slightly below parallel, low bar. 
Um, but he did a lot of his offseason training with, you know, high bar squatting deeper than he would on the platform. Uh, that was something he advocated for, obviously worked really well for him. A lot of people tried his methods and they worked well for those folks as well. Um, and I've actually taken a really similar approach to squatting myself, um, <laughs> partially because I have garbage shoulder mobility. And so when I do a bunch of low bar squats, it, uh, it's not, it doesn't feel great for my elbows. Um, but yeah, that, I, that, that's an old injury, right? With the shoulder. Um, no, that's, that's another thing. I mean, I, oh. <laughs> I just have garbage shoulder mobility and, uh, okay. it puts my left elbow and like bicep tendon in a bad I, I position. I tried to give you a pass. You could just blame it on the old, uh, wasn't it like a, I, I, I'd like to, I mean that, that affects my bench press, but it's just mobility for squats. Uh. Um, but yeah, so I've, uh, I've historically always trained high bar squat and front squat way more frequently than I train, uh, low bar squat. And the, the thing is, like, I, I think I think people can get too carried away with um, with variations of lifts such that they may not have great crossover anymore. So, for example, something that was like a hot topic in raw powerlifting five years ago is box squats for raw lifters. Um, box squats probably make a good training lift for equipped lifters because, like, you know, you probably don't want to get in full gear for every workout. The squat suit itself has stopping power somewhat analogous to a box. And so, you know, you can you can squat to a box, you know, throw some accommodating resistance on so the strength curve may be a little bit more similar to gear and like, you know, get the job done without having to spend three hours putting on a Leviathan. Um, but, you know, maybe box squats aren't such a great proxy proxy squat for raw lifters, but you know, maybe pause squats are high bar squats. If you're a low bar squatter, front squats, just things that, um, in general allow for a longer range of motion, maybe are going to have a greater hypertrophic effect for some of the prime movers due to the longer ranges of motion. And then an another key, uh, certainly for myself and for some other people as well is the consideration of like, what variation of this movement can I train the hardest? Um, and, and for me personally, if I, if I put as much volume into my low bar squat as I put into my high bar squat, my hips would hate me, my elbows would hate me, my back might hate me a little bit. It wouldn't be great. However, high bar squat is, is fantastic for me. I can train it with tremendously higher volume, uh, you know, push closer to failure without any ill effects. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's there's the idea of like, you know, are, are you going to get a better training effect from always training the, the variant of a lift that you're going to put on the platform? Or, you know, maybe are there contexts where a close variation will give you a very, very similar training effect, but, you know, may allow you to train harder, train while getting less banged up. Um, and, and I certainly don't think that's necessary, but I think it's beneficial for a lot of people. So for example, like in the Shaco system, I think everyone pretty much always squats and benches the way they would on the platform. Um, I think there might be some like close grip and incline worked in, but it's basically comp squats, comp bench, uh, and some variations on deadlift, but basically always with your primary stance. So you, you certainly don't have to use different variations to get the job done, but I, I think especially if the competition version of one of your lifts 
doesn't agree with you, if you do it with high volume, it, it's worth considering, can I get the same training effect, a similar training effect, or possibly even a better training effect with something that you know may allow me to put my joints in a, a position that feels more comfortable, maybe will let me train harder with higher volume, possibly allow me to get a good training effect while limiting load on the bar a little bit. I, I think that those are all considerations to keep in mind, especially if the comp version of one of your lifts allows you to lift more, but maybe doesn't really agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I, I found myself in this position with, uh, like I mentioned with the bench press, but also with, with a deadlift. Um, you know, I, I'm one of those people that if I train conventional deadlift hard and heavy consistently, it, it's going to give me issues. I've, I've got a, a back issue that dates back to my old wrestling days that really likes to flare up. So for me, you know, even though I would never do a competition with a sumo deadlift, cause it's just not my strongest deadlift. Uh, I still would, you know, e- even back when I was, w- when I was getting ready for a powerlifting meet in 2012 and I fancied myself a powerlifter, I would still mix in a generous amount of sumo, uh, just because it was like, if I do another conventional workout here, I'm, I'm not going to be able to walk home. It's going to be bad. Um, so, so I think there's been some value for me when it comes to mixing in my non-competition deadlift to, so I can keep training some kind of deadlift without uh, putting undue strain on those pre-existing injuries. Now, the only remaining question I have about this is if you are a competitor and you've been spending some time training either a lift or a setup for a lift that's not what you're going to compete with, when should you start switching back to the way you're actually going to compete? So I I have a, a pretty wishy-washy answer for that. And it I think it's a pretty hard it depends. But I'm not I'm not going to give it a full cop-out answer. I think there are there are some pretty clear things it depends on to allow us to to make this choice. So one, I think it depends on how long you've been doing the competition variant of a lift in the first place. So for example, if you maybe had a sports background and you always trained the squat high bar for your sport, or you always trained the bench press with like a shoulder width grip for your sport, and now you're getting into powerlifting and you give low bar squats a try and you give a wider bench press grip a try, and you've only been messing around with those things for like six months or so, and you already lift more than you did with your old techniques, um, but you know you're, you're still kind of getting acclimated to those lifts. Um, I think that probably you're, you're going to need to keep the exercises you're still learning in your program as you continue to, to learn them. So, you know, maybe you'll still do some shoulder width grip bench and some high bar squats, but every week or, or at the very least every two weeks, you're going to want to mix in the competition variants of the lifts that you're currently trying to learn. Whereas, you know, if you've been competing in powerlifting for 10 years and you've been, you know, squatting low bar and benching with a wide grip and an arch and, you know, pulling with a particular style doesn't really matter. If, if you've been doing all of those things for years, you've, you know, the lifts, you've basically mastered them. Your form is locked in. Um, you can probably deal with not having them in your training year round constantly. Uh, and then, you know, or, you know, maybe doing them once a month or more infrequently. Those motor patterns are going to stay fresh. They have been mastered to a degree that if they get a little rusty, they're going to be perfectly fine again within two or three weeks of starting to train them hard again. 
Um, so, you know, if you leave them in your training, you can probably get away with doing that for like a quarter of your squatting or benching or deadlifting volume um, and really starting to focus on them again, you know, six weeks out, eight weeks out from a meet um, versus, you know, probably needing to keep them in for a lot more of your training if you're if you're newer to those lifts. Um, and then I think another thing that matters, which is a little harder to quantify, I guess, is just generally how coordinated are you and how gifted are you at like learning and maintaining new motor skills? Um, so like I was someone growing up who was pretty good at sports and could pick up new skills pretty quickly. And for me, like I can, I can not do a competition variant of a squat for six months. The first time I try it again, it's going to feel Ah, a little iffy, like, ah, this is weird. My groove's a little off. Second time I do it, it feels perfect. Um, I think that if I was ro- rolling up to a meet and I had two sessions of low bar squats prior to the meet, I'd be fine. <laughs> um, for, versus like, you know, other people who maybe don't have the same athletic background and who, when you do learn motor skills, it takes you a little bit longer to, to pick them up and to knock the rust off. You know, you would probably need uh, to spend more time prior to a meet specifically focusing on those skills, getting the motor pattern snappy again, greasing the groove, um, you know, before trying to put that on the platform. So I, I think it depends just on the degree to which you have mastered the movements at some point in time and the degree to which you can learn and maintain and pick back up motor skills. Definitely. That makes sense. I think that just about does it for this episode, but as always, we need something to play us out. And, you know, my, my inboxes these days on social media, um, I basically only get two kinds of messages. One message is saying, uh, please keep Greg on as a permanent co-host. And, and keep, I just, and keep them rolling in no, as, I, as many, you know, probably message Eric that multiple times per day. I think I think that's ideal. Those messages are not helpful at all. And in fact, they actually make me resent Greg more and more by the day. The other kind of message I get is, hey, can you have Greg share more recipes? So today, to play us out, Greg is going to share a recipe with us for his onion jam. And I got to be honest, I was not aware that onion jam is a thing. I had never heard of it until Greg made it. Because uh, my palate is remarkably unrefined. But I can say with great confidence, this stuff is really, really good. So, Greg, onion jam, how do you do it? Yeah, man. So, onion jam, I think, is possibly the most slept on condiment out there. Uh, you know, people use ketchup, they use mustard, they use mayonnaise, they use barbecue sauce, they use Vegemite, I guess. I've heard that that's a thing. Um, but Onion jam is something that that a lot of people don't know about, and and if you've heard of it, fewer people have tried it or certainly attempted to make it themselves. Um, but it's an incredibly versatile condiment. It has a really complex flavor, and it's also um, it, it's pretty easy to to tweak the flavors and really make it any sort of condiment you want it to be. Uh, just because if you if you look at the great cuisines of the world, a lot of them start with a base including onions. So, you know, the um, the, the base of like Creole cooking is uh, onion and carrot 
and pepper, I believe, uh, generally with some garlic thrown in there as well. Uh, a good fringe mirepoix or an Italian sofrito. That's going to be onions and carrots and celery typically. Um, so, I mean, it's it's a base of... No, no, no. Creole is the pepper instead of the uh, uh, carrot, but still with celery. Please, Creole people, don't hate me. I did know that. I, so, have, I have no room in my inbox for messages about Greg and his Creole knowledge. So, yeah, so, so anyway, send those to him. So all I'm getting at is like um, for a lot of like, you know, core cu- cuisines of the world, onions are, to, are at the base of them. Because you can get a lot of really good and interesting flavors from onions, uh, and especially when you cook them down, you get the onioniness, and you also get a very uh, interesting type of sweetness. Like if you've ever put caramelized onions on a hot dog or on, uh, you know, like a, a cheesesteak or something, like they taste sweet, but they don't taste sweet the same way that like barbecue sauce does or like certainly honey or just something that's just straight up sweet like it's it's an interesting complex sweetness so you can do a lot of things with onion jams and and add different flavors to make them taste the way you want so the way that you would start an onion jam is you get a bunch of onions um so i i I would probably recommend starting with four ish onions um chopping them up, uh, slicing them really, really fine. Um, so you don't want, you know, big chunks of onions, um, but but sliced and not diced because you also don't want tiny, tiny little pieces either. Um, so you thinly slice some onions, you put them in a pan, and the traditional way to make onion jam, which I think is a little bit more effort, is you just put the onions in the pan with some oil and just cook them down the same way you would make caramelized onions and then you add other flavorings after that reason i think that's a little more effort is you don't want the onions to burn you want them to caramelize but not burn and so you you need to watch them closer and keep stirring them and stay near them with with that method so what i think works better is you take the onions you put them in a pot you cover them with some sort of liquid and then as they cook in the liquid they're going to soften they're going to a lot of the starch is going to break down and then when the liquid's gone, they're going to caramelize really quickly. And like the time you have to actively be watching it is, is much, much shorter than just starting it in a dry pan with oil. So you take the onions, you slice them fine, you cover them with some sort of liquid. I would recommend some sort of stock, either chicken stock or beef stock. Um, and then the most, most basic version is you would add a little bit of oil or butter to that pot. Um, you let the water cook down, the onions get soft. Once the water is gone, uh, the onions are going to start caramelizing them or going to start caramelizing. You turn down the heat, let them caramelize gradually. And then when they're about to get done, you add a little bit of sugar. A lot of the recipes I've seen online call for a huge amount of sugar. So I've, I've seen the most recent recipe I saw when I was looking for other onion jam ideas was like two, like three onions and a cup of sugar. That's fucking ridiculous. You don't need that much sugar. For like eight onions, I go like a quarter cup of sugar, maybe a half cup at most. Um, so a little bit of sugar. And then when all of that's cooked down and like that sugar has started to caramelize as well, you salt to taste. You don't want to salt the water initially because if that water gets 
the level of salty you want it to be. By the time it cooks down and concentrates, it's going to be way too salty. So you salt it near the end of the process. Um, and then you basically just have sweetened caramelized onions, which is the most basic form of onion jam. However, like I said, you can, you can make it your own. Um, so things that I would recommend is throwing a few or throwing a little bit of garlic into the mix. Once the liquid has cooked down all the way, just dice it really, really fine. Keep the heat low enough that the garlic's not going to burn. Um, I mean, onion, onion and garlic always plays well together. Uh, and I just love garlic. Um, when you put the onions in the pot with the stock, you can throw some fresh herbs in there. Uh, so the onion jam I have in the fridge right now, I think I went with bay leaves and thyme. Um, and they play very, very nicely together and go well with the onions. Um, to add a little bit more depth and complexity, you can add some wine into the mix. Uh, again, throw that into the pot when the onions are covered in stock, all of the alcohol will boil off. Um, and I think white wine tends to work a little bit better than red wine. I think the red wine flavor can start overpowering the onions, but throwing like a cup of white wine into the mix is a good option. Um, oftentimes you'll see onion jam recipes with a tomato element to kick up the umami. So you can just use ketchup, like for four or five onions, something like a quarter cup of ketchup gets the job done. I have some homemade ketchup that's amazing, but store-bought works perfectly fine. Would you be able to do, um, perhaps like a Shrek related ketchup that's green in color? Would that be the same? Oh yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Um, or what I see a lot of recipes call for is tomato paste. That's also really good. A lot of, a lot of free glutamate going to kick up the umaminess a little bit. Um, another very common addition you'll see to onion jam is vinegar. Um, again, that just adds another element. It's going to add some sourness into the mix. You can have, you know, sweet, salty, sour, like all of the interesting flavors, um, all in one thing. So vinegar, strongly recommend playing around with that. Uh, to kick the umami up even more, you can add a little fish sauce. I know that that's something that um, a lot of Americans probably don't have much experience cooking with. If you get some fish sauce, don't smell it before you cook it or before you put it in a dish. It smells awful. As long as you don't add way too much, you're not going to smell it by the time it's cooked down. It just adds like a ton of free glutamate and again, kicks up the umami of the onion jam. And then really any powdered spices you're interested in. So something I like to throw in is a few red pepper flakes. So you got it all going on. You have the sweetness from the onions and the sugar. You have all of the different herbs and spices you threw in. Uh, you have the savoriness kicked up from the ketchup and the fish sauce. You have a little bit of sourness from the vinegar. And now you have a little heat from some pepper flakes. It's, it's an incredibly complex flavor. But anyway, you can mess around with any of those things or none of those things. And it's going to be good. And you can customize it to the taste you want on that backbone of delicious caramelized onions. Um, and then in terms of what you'd use it for, it's a condiment. You can use it pretty much wherever you would use a condiment. So when you hear onion jam, probably don't think, oh, I'm going to spread this on toast in the morning. It would be good, but it would certainly be a non-traditional usage for it. And it's not going to replace like strawberry jam. Um, but it's really good on sandwiches. It's really good on burgers. Um, if you cook steak or pork chops, like throwing a little onion jam on top, delicious. Um, 
works well on charcuterie boards if if you're into that kind of thing and then a kind of weird thing i do with it that i personally love is i make scrambled eggs every morning and i mix it in with my eggs flavors play really nice together so anyway a lot of great condiments of the world i think onion jam is is one that, that's fairly easy to make and it's very slept on and it's very customizable um uh, so yeah if you if you've just been wanting more condiments in your life, uh, or another thing that I'll note just in general is like, man, if you have people coming over to eat and you make the main course or like you make some cookies for after the meal or whatever, people are going to be like, oh, that's nice. They cooked for me. And if the food's good, they're going to be impressed because the food's good. But the thing is, no one makes their own condiments. So just for impressing other people, if you make your own condiments, people are going to be like, holy shit, this person's serious about cooking. Um, so in terms of the condiments one could make, onion jam is one of the easier condiments and one of the more delicious. So, you know, there's there's kind of social benefits to making it as well, potentially. Um, so, yeah, it's good stuff. Make some onion jam. Now, Greg, can you respond to the uh, pretty serious allegations on Instagram? A lot of people are suggesting that in the process of cooking this onion jam, that you were indeed eating onions as a hand fruit. (laughs) Is there any substance behind these allegations? (laughs) There's not. So there, I guess there is a tiny, uh, a tiny bit of truth behind them. So completely true story. When I was a young child, um, I mean, I still like onions. Onions and garlic, I just love them. I use them in everything. Uh, But when I was a young child, I guess I liked onions even more than I do now. And when my mom would take me to the grocery store, uh, me and my brother, she'd say like, oh, if you want to pick out some fruit to eat on the ride home, go for it. And my brother would always get a red delicious apple because he's a filthy conformist. And me, big brain move, I'd always get an onion um, <laughs> and so, you know, a little like three-year-old Greg would be just, you know, like mom would peel the onion for me and I would just eat it like an apple on the way home. Um, but I, I have not done that in the last, how old am I? I haven't, I haven't done that in probably 22 or 23 years. Um, th- that rumor was started by myself when I bought a bunch of onions to make onion jam and like we have a we have a little like fruit basket on the counter and so it was a fruit basket with like nine onions and then like an apple and two bananas and <laughs> i posted on instagram something like uh you know a, a good way to stick to your diet is to make sure you have fresh fruits and vegetables around to snack on when you get hungry such as onions <laughs> and i don't know i thought it i thought it was an obvious enough joke but no, no lie. Within the next like 18 hours, I got about 140 messages from that story. <laughs> um, and there were there were like probably 20 or 30 people that that thought it was hilarious, clearly knew it was a joke. And then I'm sure that there were more who like were responding to the joke with the joke of, oh, you eat raw onions, but it's hard to pick up sarcasm. But I'm I'm sure that there were within that group of people at least 50 that were just like what the fuck dude like are you serious and no i was not i just had a bunch of onions on hand to make onion jam i'm glad we could clear that up for everybody um 
So yeah, all the positive feedback on Greg's uh, recipes, I feel like Greg has become very emboldened in the kitchen. So he's going for these very complex flavors. The onion jam, like I said, was really terrific. He also made like a green tea ginger ice cream that was extremely interesting flavor. Very, very good. So um, he's, he's going a bit mad now that he's got a, a little more confidence from the internet uh, for his cooking. So he's really pushing the envelope a little bit. No, I just have more time to cook now that I'm not in school. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. So that does it for this uh, for this week's episode. After the music, we've got a very good interview with Alex Colliari-Turner. And he is doing a, a really interesting study right now. They are looking at myonuclei number in skeletal muscle. And they're specifically studying this in males, uh, I believe between the age 20 and 40, who are either currently or have been using anabolic steroids. So um, he is currently recruiting for that study. So if you hear about it in the interview and you think it sounds interesting, be sure to reach out to Alex. We will make his contact information available. So enjoy the interview and we'll see you next time. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. Today, I am joined by Greg Knuckles and also Alex Cagliari-Turner. So Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Eric and Greg. Of course. So Alex, um, can you tell us a little bit about about yourself? You're, You're doing a PhD right now. So where are you going to school and what are you studying? So I'm a second year PhD student at the University of Brighton, which is on the south coast of England, for anyone that's not familiar. And my PhD is investigating if uh, muscle exhibits a memory of anabolic steroid exposure. So do you come from a uh, like a sports background personally? Uh, so I come actually from a biology background and then wanted to get into sports science. And when I... Look, I was living in Brighton at the time, and when I uh, approached the postgraduate department, uh, I specifically wanted to work with my professor. Uh, he was on a different topic, actually. And uh, when I started talking to him, it turned out he had this project in line. And since then, uh, I then enrolled to uh, to help him get this project off the ground. Yeah, because you, you did your undergraduate degree was in biology at Oxford, right? That's correct. And so... You basically, your interest in myonuclei and doping, that kind of came after meeting your current advisor. Is that right? Yes. Uh, I actually saw him uh, on a documentary where he was talking about how he was trying to generate a new drug test for uh, erythropoietin or EPO, which is a drug that's commonly used or has been commonly used in the Tour de France um, to enhance endurance performance and uh, he's trying to come up with a new drug test and has spent about 10 years doing that. And I originally approached him to want to help him to do that because my undergrad degree involved a lot of uh, learning about sequencing technology. And uh, he was applying uh, the omic technologies, so transcriptomics, which is what was particularly interesting, but also uh, proteomics and metabolomics to try and enhance the EPO detection window that uh, and at that same time when we were having that conversation, he said that 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 project's coming close to an end and that the next project he has coming up would be investigating uh, if muscle exhibits a memory of anabolic steroid exposure. 
Yeah, and I mean, so you, Greg, and I were uh, just last week, we were all in London for the European Powerlifting Conference, and we got a chance to talk a little bit. And it sounds like the project you're working on has really huge ramifications for for high-level sport when it comes to doping. Um, but bef- before we get into that specific project, can you give us a little bit about a little bit of a background about satellite cells and myonuclei and why they're so important when it comes to hypertrophy and doping and and sport in general? Uh, sure. So we have to think about muscle as a, as a special tissue in the body because it's multinucleated. So unlike skin cells or liver cells or kidney cells where there's one nucleus inside one singular cellular body, muscle is actually uh, in a something called a syncytium, which means it's multinucleated. So within inside one cellular body, within inside one fiber, there's many, many nuclei. And the reason for that is because muscle cells by volume are the largest cells inside the human body. So one nucleus would not be able to support the volume of such a large cell. So it has to have many nuclei inside the cellular body. Now, these nuclei are important when we're talking about muscle growth because they are the structural units that are responsible for making proteins. And the interesting thing about my nuclei is it's believed that... uh, there is only a fixed volume around a myonuclus in which proteins can be made. So if you're wanting to enhance the size of a muscle, you obviously want muscle protein synthesis to outweigh muscle protein breakdown. So you want to stimulate the nuclei that are inside that muscle fiber to make more proteins. But there's only a fixed distance in which those proteins can diffuse around the nucleus. So if the number of nuclei are fixed inside the muscle fiber, it's only going to be able to grow to a certain size uh, because the diffusion distance of, from these nuclei of the proteins is, is, is capped. Uh, and so what has to happen for the muscle fiber to get beyond a certain size is the stem cells that surround the muscle fiber, which are called satellite cells, have to become activated. They then proliferate, which means they divide, and then they donate their nuclei into the muscle fiber And they then become myonuclei themselves. And therefore, the number of myonuclei in the fiber has increased. You then have more structural units to make proteins. And so the fiber can then grow to a bigger size than it was in the past. And uh, that's that's the mechanism uh, in which satellites are important to muscle growth. Now, a lot of studies seem to measure satellite cells, but, but not myonuclei specifically. Why is that? Uh, in the past, myonuclei were particularly difficult to count accurately because you have to be able to stain the muscle fiber uh, itself. And then a myonuclus, a true myonuclus, the center of its nucleus is inside the, the muscle fiber and the satellite cells are just outside. And so there was some difficulty in trying to uh, stain and differentiate those two nuclei and now there's actually myonuclei specific dyes that exist and stains so that is much easier to do now so there's been basically some improvements in the methodology that allow us to now get directly to the measurement we were really hoping for in the first place that's exactly it and that's actually caused a big paradigm shift in uh, muscle atrophy because what was originally believed was once a muscle fiber hypertrophies and gets bigger and the number of nuclei increases when that muscle fiber then shrinks and experience atrophy, it used to be believed that the number of myonuclei would go down. And as the fiber shrinks, 
the nuclei decrease as well. But actually, it's turned out that other nuclei inside the muscle fiber decrease during atrophy. So the number of satellite cells might decrease. The number of nuclei of blood capillaries might decrease and immune cell nuclei within the muscle fiber might decrease. But the myonuclei themselves seem to be protected for during this condition of atrophy. And the laboratory that's responsible for that finding is uh, based out of Oslo. There's three key researchers that were involved in that. Uh, one was Christian Gunderson, the other one was Joe Christian Brusgard, and the last one was uh, Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Egner. And they conducted a, some very sophisticated uh, experiments where they would uh, subject a mice to a hypertrophic uh, condition, so it would build muscle, and then they would then ex ex uh, subject the mice to an atrophying condition and make it lose muscle. And what they would do is just before they were exposed it to the atrophying condition, they'd cut the mice open, they'd inject a dye into a, into the muscle fibers, and then they would look at the number of myonuclei inside that fiber, then they'd stitch the mice back up, they'd expose the mice to the atrophying condition, and at the end of the atrophying condition, they'd open the mice back up again, and they'd go back in and look at that very specific fiber that they injected the dye to, and then see what happened to the number of nuclei. And so in three different cases of an atrophying condition, which was suspending the hind limbs of the leg of the mice in the air, so that the mice did not walk around, so there was no contraction of the back legs, so they atrophied, and the other two conditions were uh, chemically blocking the nervous supply to the muscle. So again, the muscle couldn't contract, so it atrophied. Or surgically removing the nervous supply to the muscle. So again, it couldn't contract, so it atrophied. And in all three of those cases, when they looked at the same myonuclei before and after the atrophying condition, the number of myonuclei stayed exactly the same and in the exact same place. But the fiber itself, the cylinder of the muscle fiber, shrunk down in size. And so that led them to believe that the myonuclei that accumulate for muscle hypertrophy are retained even during atrophying conditions. And that went against the previous literature where they were actually only looking at markers of nuclear degradation. And they always saw markers of nuclear degradation after atrophy. But it turns out they weren't measuring myonuclei specifically. And it was actually other nuclei inside the muscle cells that were dying off. And this led Christian Gunderson to come up with uh, a new model of muscle, atrophy, uh, muscle hypertrophy and atrophy, in which the nuclei that accumulate from hypertrophy are protected during atrophy. And if they remain, in theory, what should then happen is if you then expose the muscle to a second hypertrophic stimulus, it should grow at a much quicker rate the second time round. And that is the molecular mechanism of muscle memory. And is, in his opinion, how uh, if someone lose muscle mass, they can then uh, build their muscle back up and at a much quicker rate the second time round than it ever took them to build it in the first place. So if you are in an accident and you break a leg and your leg is in a cast and your leg loses muscle mass, when you're healthy and you can get back into training, you can build your muscle back up to where it was much quicker than it took you to build the muscle in the first place. And that's because those myonuclei that were incorporated into your muscle in the first place are retained and then allow for an enhanced rate of protein synthesis upon a second exposure to a hypertrophic stimulus. And that's the molecular mechanism of muscle memory. And Christine Gunderson, if you're interested, anyone listening, has got a fantastic review paper that's free on that. So if you just Google Christian Gunderson muscle memory, you'll find it. And in that paper, he argues that this is actually an evolutionary mechanism to perverse muscle mass. Because it would make sense in mammals that 
in times of uh, plentiful food that you would put muscle mass on, you'd, you'd accumulate myonuclei inside your cells. And then in times of famine and atrophy, or in the winter when you're not as active, in an evolutionary sense, and you lost muscle mass, it would make sense that when it comes around to a following summer that you'd put that muscle that you previously had on much quick, much quicker and the retained myonuclei inside your fibers can then facilitate that and so enhance muscle memory. Now, so that's that's the uh, proposal for how that all works, right? But um, when we were both in London recently, we were chatting about the fact that there's apparently another recent study from a group in America that did not support that model. So would, would you mind just briefly... A, discussing that study, and B, um, now that there is at least some level of counter-evidence against, uh, against that model, uh, discuss where this theory stands currently. So I, I painted a lovely picture there, and that's what the research of that lab in Oslo has done. Uh, but as Greg mentioned, last month, a research study was published in mice out of the University of Kentucky in John McCarthy's laboratory. And uh, Duncan is the lead author on that paper. And in that paper, they uh, hypertrophied mice by subjecting them to running on a wheel that was progressively overloaded and weighted by one gram every week. So they started on an empty wheel and every week one gram was added for eight weeks. And at the end of that eight weeks, the muscles inside the plantaris muscle of those mice hypertrophied. They got bigger and the number of myonuclei increased. But then they detrained those mice and left them and they did nothing. And then when they reanalyzed the muscle, it turned out that their myonuclei numbers had actually decreased and their muscle fibers had shrank down to the exact same size that they were before. And so... That directly challenges the theory that the myonuclei that accumulate from hypertrophy are retained. And that's the first study that's been published that's shown that after hypertrophy, the myonuclei that have accumulated are lost. So that has led to a, a challenge on this theory. And further research is going to be required to investigate uh, why is it those myonuclei were lost? And why is it that in the previous studies they were indeed retained? It may do have something to do possibly with fiber type or it may also have something to do with us just better understanding uh, the pathway of a satellite cell proliferating and then donating its nucleus in time the fiber and it becoming a true myonuclus because that's obviously a time course where the nucleus is at some point a satellite cell nucleus and then it becomes a myonuclus and there's actually a change in nuclear proteins that can be observed that eventually result in it being classified as a true myonuclus. So maybe the nuclei that were removed in this study had not become true myonuclei yet. They were still sort of late stage satellite cell, not full stage myonuclei yet. So that could be one reason, but this is all uh, postulation and further research is going to have to investigate what results in a myonuclus being protected from degradation and what doesn't because that has big implications on uh, doping in terms of steroids accumulating myonuclei and also big accumulation, a uh, big uh, importance with uh, sarcopenia and elderly people potentially losing myonuclei as they get older, which could be one way that we could prevent losses in muscle mass as people get older, which is obviously a big importance uh, as we have an increase in the aging population and an enhanced percentage of people becoming old and frail. So I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned steroids in, in that last comment, um, because that is kind of 
the the thrust of the PhD project that you're doing. So so just briefly, how do uh, or how does dopamine and specifically androgenic anabolic steroids how do they affect myonuclei? Um, what what current research is there out there on on how steroids affect myonuclei and how might that then contribute to muscle memory and you know maybe inform doping bands and and j- just practically how how would this affect um, how doping control and sport work in general? So anabolic androgenic steroids uh, inside the body have the ability to bind to their receptor, which is called the androgen receptor. And satellite cells contain androgen receptors. And anabolic steroids can activate satellite cells to proliferate and to donate their nuclei inside the muscle fibers. And that's even in the absence of any resistance training. And we know that's the case in humans from testosterone administration studies that were conducted in the early 2000s by an author called Sinha Hakim and you can see in that paper that they give graded amounts of testosterone up to 600 milligrams a week and myonuclei accumulation occurs in their muscle fibers at the end of the steroid exposure uh, so that that means anabolic steroids they increase muscle mass by two ways they firstly increase the rate at which proteins are made inside the muscle. So any pre-existing nuclei inside the muscle will make proteins at a faster rate. So that will make the fibers get bigger. But then additionally, they then also cause myonuclei to get put into the fibers. So then the protein synthetic capacity of the cell is increased. So it's by that other mechanism also increasing muscle growth. And uh, you asked about what research has been conducted in terms of uh, anabolic steroids and muscle memory. In 2013, the Oslo laboratory that I mentioned before uh, that published a paper with the lead author was uh, Ingrid Egner. And in that paper, they exposed mice to testosterone for two weeks. And at the end of the two weeks, as expected, their muscle fibers were enlarged and their number of nuclei had gone up. Uh, And at the same time, they also had a control group in the study where they gave them a placebo. And at the end of this two weeks, in both groups, they removed the testosterone pellet or the placebo pellet. And then they left the mice in their cages doing nothing for three months, which is 12% of the mice's lifespan. And at the end of that three-month period, the number of myonuclei was still elevated by 28% in the group that was previously exposed to anabolic steroids uh, compared to the control group. Yet at that exact same time point, their fibers had shrank down to the exact same size. So even the fibers were the same size, the nuclei was still elevated in the group that was previously exposed to anabolic steroids by 28%. And at that time point, they exposed the mice to a hypertrophic stimulus and that lasted for two weeks. And after six days, the mice that were previously exposed to anabolic steroids, their muscle fibers increased in size by 30%. Whereas the mice that were not previously exposed to anabolic steroids, their muscle fibers only increased in size by 6%. And at the end of that two-week period, uh, the muscle fibers grew in parallel, but the the group that was previously exposed to anabolic steroids, their muscles and fibers were still 20% larger compared to the group that was not previously exposed to anabolic steroids. And so the conclusion of that paper was uh, the myonuclei that accumulate from anabolic steroid usage in mice are retained and they then result in an enhanced rate of protein synthesis later down the line and so those muscles 
those mice that were previously exposed to anabolic steroids could could build muscle at a quicker rate than mice that had never been exposed previously to anabolic steroids, even if they hadn't been exposed to steroids for over 12% of their lifespan. Uh, and that obviously uh, puts in a big question for humans, because if we know that anabolic steroids increase myonuclei numbers in humans, the question is, do those myonuclei numbers go down as time passes? And there's not been a single study that has investigated that, and that is why our research has decided to investigate that. What we can do is look back in the research of, of, of any research that's been conducted on past steroid users, because if past steroid users are still retaining high levels of myonuclei inside their muscles, which you'd theorize uh, would, would happen because of their steroid usage, then that might provide indirect evidence that the myonuclei that accumulate from steroid usage in humans are indeed retained. And there's been one research study, uh, study that was conducted, and uh, that was published in 2006 by Anders Ericsson, and that was just a PhD thesis. Uh, he recruited seven current anabolic steroid users uh, and, and I'll just double check how many past users. Uh, sorry, he recruited nine current anabolic steroid users who at the time of the biopsy were uh, using on average about 1,000 milligrams of anabolic steroids. And he also recruited seven past anabolic steroid users. And uh, in those past anabolic steroid users, they had stopped using steroids for an average of eight years and previously in their life, they'd used steroids for roughly four and a half years. And in that study, uh, they biopsied both the trapezius muscle and the vastus lateralis, with the outer quadricep muscle. And in the trapezius muscle, it was shown that in the powerlifters that had previously taken anabolic steroids, their myonuclei numbers were indeed still elevated and uh, actually higher than powerlifters that had never used anabolic steroids before even though on average these guys had stopped taking anabolic steroids eight years ago um so that's a particularly interesting finding uh was that myonuclei number or density uh i believe it's myonuclei number per fiber okay okay yeah number of myonuclei per fiber and that that the current users in that group so the nine anabolic steroid users the current users in that group uh they've also been some peer-reviewed published literature on their, on their trapezius muscle, and that was published by Farazi KD in the year 2000. Uh, and they were that was the, the research paper that was shown that uh, the percentage of myonuclei expressing the androgen receptor is much higher in the trapezius muscle compared to the vastus lateralis in untrained people, in trained people, and then that disparity is then even further enhanced in people that are taking anabolic steroids. So the trapezius muscle, the percentage of myonuclei that express the antigen receptor is, is, is high and even higher if you take anabolic steroids. And so that might be the reason why uh, these myonuclei are potentially being retained. Um, but there's very little research on trapezius muscle biopsies. Uh, but because that's the muscle that has potentially been shown to have a elevated number of myonuclei years after the cessation of usage. That's the muscle we're using in our, in our research. Um, I'd also note from that research study, there's also, uh, it's unpublished, but there's a report that you can read online from that same cohort of people where they actually looked inside the, the just what proteins are inside the muscle of those guys. And using two-dimensional proteomics, they detected over 2,300 proteins inside the muscle tissue. 
And in some guys that even though they'd stopped using steroids 10 years ago, they still had 80 different proteins inside their muscle compared to uh, people that had never taken anabolic steroids before. So it seems to be that the androgen receptor, the binding that's been going on and the proteins that have been made inside that muscle cell uh, had made different proteins and they seem to have been retained many, many years after the cessation of usage, uh, which is very interesting. And there's not really been any other research conducted on past anabolic steroid users since then. So that that's really interesting. So um, just for the audience listening, this is an area that I personally find pretty fascinating. And up to this point, most of the research that, that Alex had, uh, had mentioned, I was at least somewhat familiar with. But Alex, I had not heard about that most or that last report that you mentioned was there more information about that like was there any information about what types of proteins there were or you know was it more just kind of like a little note that like oh there were 80 that differed um or or did it go into more detail unfortunately they don't go into the detail of the exact proteins and i think that's because the technology they were using they uh I don't, they at the moment haven't distinguished them. Um, I haven't seen that. This is a, this is a report on the WADA website. It's it's not being peer reviewed and ended up in the published literature. So maybe at some point it will, but I haven't seen, um, seen them specifically discuss what proteins are indeed different. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I, I was just wondering cause there's, I mean, just in kind of like the way that bros in the gym talk about steroids, they talk about, you know, not just changes in muscle size and then changes in contractile function one one would expect to come with muscle size. But they also, you know, talk about different functional changes that steroids might bring about that, to my knowledge, there's not much uh, evidence for. But if those 80 proteins were ones that, that would at least theoretically significantly affect muscle function, that, that would be quite interesting. Um, okay, so we, we've talked about... Greg, can I uh, specifically ask what, what you mean by those other changes in function? Just because I, I, don't, I don't know, like those anecdotes. What do you mean by that? So some people propose that steroids make the muscles uh, much, much, much more resilient against muscle damage. Um, some people propose that steroids... Um, dramatically increase contractile force independent of cross-sectional area. Um, so, you, you know, so like specific tension would increase along with uh, cross-sectional area increasing, which actually runs counter to, to some of the research that's out there by uh, you and colleagues 2014. Um, but yeah, just j- just various things like that, which I, I, I kind of think is probably some you know some dude did steroids at some point noted some differences and then that anecdote just kind of became you know the the word of god on whatever forum this person was a prolific poster on but yeah i mean kind of planted the idea in people's heads and so they they kept an eye out for it yeah pretty much cool yeah so yeah, uh, we, we've talked about myonuclei in general. We've talked about how doping affects myonuclei and how that could potentially lead to, um, lead to, to maybe long-term differences in hypertrophy. 
So what, uh, what exactly are you doing with your study, Alex? And what, what is that going to add to the literature here? So we're specifically looking for men aged 20 to 40 years old and who are current anabolic steroid users who ideally come to visit our laboratory towards the end of their steroid cycle when they're exposed to superphysiological levels. And then soon after their visit, they will then cycle off anabolic steroids. They'll conduct their own post-cycle therapy. So they won't go and drop down to a replacement dose of testosterone. They will conduct their own post-cycle therapy to fully come off anabolic steroids. And then re-invite them back for sampling six months later. And because we are taking muscle biopsies and also measuring muscle mass, we will therefore get an indication of how much muscle mass does someone maintain or lose when they come off an anabolic steroid cycle. And at the molecular level, we will have a comparison of muscle that was exposed to super physiological levels of androgen receptor binding, and then six months later is no longer exposed to super physiological levels of androgen receptor binding. So we'll be able to look at do the myonuclei numbers, are they retained and elevated six months later? And also in terms of pathways of growth, uh, because you've had super physiological levels of androgen receptor binding, how does that compare six months later down the line? And as far as I know, there's never been any studies published in the literature on gene expression inside the muscle of someone exposed to super physiological levels. Um, it's only ever been in guys who are exposed to replacement levels of testosterone uh, and or growth hormone. And we are uh, also... If someone is, uh, so ideally we want people to, uh, who come to the lab, eventually they go off steroids and they come back. So we have a second time point. However, if there are people out there who uh, don't, are not coming off anabolic steroids, but they're still interested in this research and would like to contribute to our knowledge on myonuclei levels in steroid users, gene expression inside the muscle of steroid users, which has never been investigated before, and even what the uh, epi epigenetics looks like inside the muscle i could talk about that a little bit later uh, that's also never been looked at so even if someone is using anabolic steroids at the moment but they're not planning on coming off uh, they could also come and be involved in our research just to give us some extra data points but ideally we're looking for people who are then coming off uh, fully and at the same time we're also looking to recruit guys who uh, took anabolic steroids two to four years ago but since then have been steroid free so we can then see are their myonuclide numbers still high and also what does their uh, molecular pathways of growth look like considering it's been years since they've had super physiological levels of androgen receptor binding. Ideally, those guys are no longer on a replacement dose of testosterone. Uh, they've, they've been fully off. But if someone's on some medically supervised, genuine testosterone replacement, then they can speak to me further because we might be able to get involved. However, ideally, those people have come fully off anabolic steroids. So, so not like the people who will, will tell you on the internet, oh, I'm just on TRT, and then it turns out they're on like 500 milligrams a week. Uh, yes, that, that that's not the true testosterone replacement dose. Uh, ideally, it's 150 milligrams a week. Gotcha. Um, that, and if it's medically supervised, that's even better, because then we know that's genuine testosterone replacement therapy, where if someone is cruising on a two, three, 400 milligram dosage, then uh, they're still going to be above normal levels of androgen receptor binding compared to someone who's got a uh, normal circulating level of testosterone who's who's not taking anabolics. Um, and so this study has actually already been going on for a year and we've already biopsied 30 people now, uh, seven current users and five past users. Um, but as I've heard Greg say before, the most difficult part of research is recruiting people. And so we're always looking for more people to get involved. 
we have sampling dates coming up in October 2019. That's the 26th, the 27th, the 28th of October 2019 in the University of Brighton Welkin Laboratories, which is actually in the Eastbourne campus, which is just a town 40 minutes away by train from Brighton. Um, so if anyone is available on that Saturday, Sunday or Monday in October, then they should email me because we can uh, discuss your trip further. We can reimburse your travel expenses to get you involved uh, from anywhere in England and one night's accommodation. And even if you live kind of nearby in Europe, we might be able to get you involved as well because the cost of getting someone's train down from northern England is sometimes the same as a flight on EasyJet from a European country. So we can usually try and work that out with somebody. Um, And the research is probably going to be going on to 2020 as well. So even if you're listening to this after October 2019, you think, well, that's interesting. I'd like to get involved. Still get in touch with me because we always have dates coming up. But at some point in 2020, the study is going to come to an end. So I I want us to make the most of this opportunity that we have uh, because We've, we've got all the equipment in place. We have all the personnel to do the biopsies in place, all the medical professionals. We have all the equipment ready at the university. It's now just a matter of trying to get as many current and past anabolic steroid users enrolled in the research so we can make the most of this opportunity. Um, so if anyone out there is interested, just email me. We can take the conversation further. I can describe the study a little bit more of what's going to happen on the day. I can answer any of your questions. And then we can hopefully proceed to organizing your visit either on the 26th, 27th, 28th of, of October or sometime in 2020. And I'd like to interject. I mean, recruiting for studies is absolutely uh, one of the most challenging things, and especially when you're working in a really specialized population. So years ago, um, I was recruiting for a study on, on bodybuilders, and one of the biggest challenges was trying to convince bodybuilders, I'm one of you. Like, I'm not here to, like, make bodybuilding look bad. I'm not here to pass judgment on what bodybuilders do. We're just trying to learn. And so uh, I think it's important to stress for, for a study like this, if you're listening and you qualify and you're like, I don't know, this is kind of a sensitive topic. Um, it's just so important to stress how meaningful and critical this research is and how important the findings are. So if you're listening and you're on the fence, you're like, I don't know if I want to get involved because it's a sensitive topic. Uh, I would encourage you to, to really strongly consider it. And I'd also add that uh, the university ethics for this project, as you can imagine, were hard to come by. But one of the things that we have to adhere to uh, to be allowed to conduct this research is uh, the be providing anonymity to the participants. So when someone comes to the laboratory, the only person that interviews them about their steroid usage is me. And I'm the only person knows what group they're in. Uh, it's not discussed with the other people that are helping out with the study. Uh, and there's no reference to your name on, on anything that we do. You're given a random number when you enter the labs. And that's what's written on all of your 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 samples. And that that is then further randomized later on for publication. So there's not going to be any way anyone's going to be able to work out uh, even if you took part in this research unless you wanted to tell them. So there is anonymity uh, guaranteed and as Eric said uh, if you're on the fence just email me anyway and we can have a chat uh, I tend to speak to all the participants on the phone um, and tell them more about what's going on what they can expect the logistics of their travel etc etc so that we can then make the the visit as uh, as pleasant as possible for them 
Yeah, and this isn't, when you talk about anonymity, this isn't like when some website says, no, no, we're going to protect your data. And then you find out six months later, they sold your data. And there's like a big lawsuit. Like, I promise you, if Alex breaches that confidentiality, his life is going to be a world of pain. So you can have a tremendous deal of confidence in that security of anonymity. Yeah, it would not be worth it at all uh, <laughs> not for me at all. To, to do that. <laughs> so we've got no interest in it. And, uh, you know, in the United Kingdom, we, we live in a country where the possession of anabolic steroids is legal. They're class C drugs. So possession for personal use is not criminalized. So even conducting this kind of research is difficult in other countries where that is the case, where university ethics boards would maybe question researchers wanting to recruit people who are possessing substances that are against the control acts of that country, whereas that's not the case in the United Kingdom. So it's one of the few places you could even conduct research like this, um, which is another reason why it's interesting to try and get people involved because uh, it, other countries might not even be able to conduct this type of research. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're definitely not doing this in Sweden, right? <laughs> isn't that or, I, or or denmark is, isn't 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 sweden the place where if you're too jacked like the the police will just come into the gym and drug test you uh well i know i don't know sweden but in in uh denmark i know that uh if you've ever seen the film under construction 2 with dave crosland uh he goes and visits gyms in denmark and he talks to the anti-doping denmark and they explain that the gyms can sign up to have drug testing at the gym level. So people, anti-doping Denmark can walk into a commercial gym and they can drug test people just at random, obviously depending on their appearance. Um, and in the in the film, he they explain that uh, at the front door of the gym, they have to display a, a, a smiley face, which, explain, which indicates drug testing happens or a sad face, which indicates drug testing doesn't happen. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like the surgeon general's warning on packs no. of cigarettes they, they need to update that it should be um if there's no drug testing it should be a winky face like <laughs> hey, you're, you're. Uh, and so and so dave in that film goes and visits these different gyms uh and i think a lot of the gyms that uh sad faces just don't put the picture up but um, still, uh, that 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 does happen. So it just goes to show you how strict the rulings are. And if you're caught uh, taking steroids, even if you're just a gym goer, um, you can then be served an anti-doping violation and not be allowed to train at the commercial gyms anymore, and you're kind of blacklisted. So <laughs> the, you know that's a very different. It's very very different to how it is in other countries. It's the literal real life natty police. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but that, they, that's just because they have different rulings. I, I, I encourage anyone to go and watch that. Watch Under Construction too. You, you've got to. You can stream it. It's not expensive, uh, and I think Dave does a really good job uh, trying to navigate that space when he goes and visits. Yeah, so my understanding. I could be wrong. Um, so if you're listening and you know about this, correct me. We people listen to our show in every country except the Netherlands. So somebody will let me know if we're wrong. But I believe. In Sweden, purely based on appearance, they can kind of flag you as a suspected steroid user and then conduct a mandatory drug test. And I believe they can charge you with criminal possession of steroids because it is in your system at that time. So even if you don't have like steroids in your car or at your house or whatever, the fact that it is present in your body, I believe, is, is a, 
makes you subject to criminal charges. Yeah, that's 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 what I had heard as well. I I haven't heard that, but that's interesting. <clears throat> but that's a good segue because I mean, the research that you're doing has really high potential to influence uh, all sorts of anti-doping policy in the future. So do you guys is that kind of part of the um part of the intention here is to figure out how long a ban should be for for when someone who competes in sport gets caught with a, a steroid violation uh, i think it, our research is investigating that but it's never going to be able to provide a concrete answer uh because obviously we're only one one study and depending on the and the people we can get uh it'd be very difficult to extrapolate that to all people um but we are definitely gonna add, add shine a further light onto my nuclei retention post steroid usage, as that's never been properly investigated in humans, but has been rigorously tested now in mice. Uh, so that 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 will that will be interesting. Um, but I would add that um, a lifetime ban is never going to happen in anti-doping um, because for first-time offences anyway, because it. L- Law-wise, and the lawyers are involved in anti-doping, that that would just never pass, uh, and and that's why that's not the case as it currently stands. Where at the moment it's a four-year ban if you're caught with a prohibited drug. If you're caught with a second offence, the ban is then customised depending on the severity of the offence, um, which can be up to a lifetime ban to, if it was blatant cheating. But if the second offence was proven to be contaminated, or indirect or inadvertent, um, then it can be reduced and less. Um, but I don't think that first-time offences are ever going to result in lifetime bans, even if anabolic steroids were shown that the myonuclei that they accumulate are retained. Um, maybe it might result in a slight extension on the ban for steroids specifically if their effects on muscle are slightly longer-lasting, whereas, for example, if someone takes a stimulant or an amphetamine and gets a boost prior to an event, you know, a few years later, that's never going to benefit them. Whereas it might be if their steroid use cycle does retain a, a benefit in their muscle many months later. Um, maybe uh, maybe the band length might be extended on that, but you're then starting to deal with the lawyer aspect of anti-doping and, uh, and that's probably not going to change for some time. Yeah, so just to clarify, currently the system is you get, you get caught the first time, that's an automatic four-year ban? Unless... It can be proven that your it was inadvertent exposure. So if you prove it was a genuine contaminated supplement, so the supplement you were using and uh, supplements that are then take had taken from the supply chain with the same batch number, then both proven to contain trace amounts of a drug that was not on the label and therefore it's inadvertent as consumption. It can be reduced down for four years. Equally, if you have a genuine need for a drug, but you have not filled out the correct therapeutic use exemption form, then and you're found with that drug in your system. So some people have to take drugs that uh, and that could actually mask other drugs, but they actually require to help monitor their blood pressure or something along those lines. But they're used also to mask steroid usage. If it's proven that you have to take that drug because otherwise you'd suffer from a medical condition, but you didn't fill out the appropriate paperwork, then the four-year ban could be reduced. But if inadvertent or consumption or therapeutic reasons are not uh, are, are ruled out, then yeah, it's a four-year it's a four-year ban. And so obviously, the the research that you're working on now is going to really help us understand this timeline with a lot a much clearer understanding, but 
I mean, do you think that four years is sufficient currently uh, when it comes to, you know, if we catch somebody using anabolic steroids, do you think a four-year ban is enough to actually um, mitigate the advantage that was obtained? Uh, I think it's always going to depend. Well, if if we're talking about steroids causing myonuclear accumulation, the level of myonuclear accumulation is always going to depend on the dosage of steroids used, the length of exposure, and the types of drugs used. Um, And we... Even if we do find that myonuclei are indeed retained after steroid usage, so they're not going down, um, we don't really know how if that may manifest in what in what level does that manifest itself in the benefit inside somebody's muscle? Because the theorized benefit would be if your myonuclei numbers are always still high, the protein synthetic rate of that muscle could always be higher than it was when the myonuclei numbers were lower. So. That would mean that your muscle fibers might be able to grow to a bigger size. However, if you're no longer taking steroids anymore, then the protein synthetic rate inside your muscle is going to be lower. So maybe it can't, even if it has more myonuclei, maybe it can't even grow as big as it ever was in the past. That's that's definitely not going to be happening. But although you might not be able to put on muscle mass better, even if you have higher numbers of myonuclei, you might recover better because your protein synthetic rate inside the muscle might be higher so that could be one retained advantage um but do just four years or not i don't i don't know and i i think our study is only going to slightly shine light on that because we're not controlling the steroid cycles of these individuals we're not controlling their training or their nutrition in an ideal world what we'd want be able to do is give people anabolic steroids train them uh see how much muscle they put on, how, how many myonuclide they accumulate, and then take them off uh, anabolic steroids, probably keep their training going, and then just kind of see what's their rate of muscle growth like later down the line, and what's their myonuclide numbers later down the line. That would truly answer this que- that question, but at least hopefully with this study, if we get enough people to return on a second occasion, and we get enough past users, then we can further investigate that um, retention mechanism. And is this a, a line of research that you're you're planning on continuing kind of down the line in your career? Uh, so our group is also, because investigating the issue of incorporating fairly transgendered individuals into sport, because uh, a man, a biological male, cis man, who has a testosterone level, a high testosterone level up to the year of transition, so say that's in their 20s, then they've had past puberty maybe 10 or more years of a high testosterone environment uh, which would you theorize would mean high levels of myonuclei and then the question is when they then undergo hormonal therapy and they reduce their testosterone and they become a female uh, do their numbers of myonuclei remain elevated or not and that's never been fully investigated and so in line with this research we're doing on anabolic steroids and muscle memory uh, we want to look at muscle memory in transgendered individuals and uh, so we have submitted the ethical approval for a study in which we will monitor 20 individuals transitioning either direction um, I've not that's not my main project my main project is this anabolic steroid uh, muscle memory project Dr. Jo- Jonathan Ospina Bettenker is he- heading the transgender project and we're hoping to hear back very shortly about um, with the, the ethics was submitted and uh, there were some, as you can imagine, that's a very 
uh, difficult study to try and conduct and m many many things have to be considered on the ethical level to make sure uh, participants are looked after and so there were some critiques and now those critiques have been actioned and rightfully so and been resubmitted and we're waiting to hear back from that um, but I would hope that in the next year or so that that study will be up and running and hopefully I'll be able to contribute to that because it will be happening at the University of Brighton with our group. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've followed along, but there have been a couple um, pretty big news stories here in the States about uh, transgender athletes competing in powerlifting. So, you know, in the kind of circles online that Greg and I see and participate in, there's been a, a really active discussion about how to address uh, incorporating transgender athletes into competitive sports that are that have you know male and female or men's and women's classes within the sport. So uh, that I mean that's going to be critically important research. I'm really excited to see what you guys find with that study. I feel like discussion might be an overly polite way to to describe the discourse. Um, <laughs> so I I actually have. Uh, I have another kind of like more basic science question about satellite cells and, and myonuclei. Um, th th this is something that I meant to ask early on, but conversation went as it did. But I'm still kind of asking somewhat selfishly because um, it's something I'm interested in. So as we covered kind of at, at the top of the interview, um, a lot of especially the older studies looked at satellite cells specifically, but not so much myonuclei. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering if if someone were to go back and read those old old studies, um, to to what degree do or to what degree does satellite cell activation proliferation uh, to what degree is that predictive of eventual myonuclear accretion? One, two. What do we know about kind of what mechanistically causes or contributes to myonuclear accretion. Um, and then three, do satellite cells themselves do anything interesting or potentially useful? So like basically, if, if there are satellite cells hanging out that aren't myonuclei and don't go on to become, or that don't go on to donate their nuclei, are they still doing anything for us or, or are they just kind of hanging out there? Uh, so I would say that I'll just answer that first question you see the last question you said where uh, the satellite cells are they just sort of hanging out uh, from what I've read it seems to be that when a satellite cell is activated to proliferate um, one the, the cell will divide in two one of those cells will then remain a resident satellite cell and the other one is then destined down the pathway to become a myonuclei okay. a true myonuclei proper and the reason why uh, so there seems to be basically when the cell divides, uh, n nuclear factors inside one of the cells will cause it to stay a satellite cell and nuclear factors inside the others will cause a change in expression that's required to, for it to become a myonuclei proper, a myonuclus proper. And the reason why this the original cell stays as a satellite cell is so as to not deplete the satellite cell pull inside your muscle because uh, you wouldn't want to run out of satellite cells because all of them have become myonuclei because uh, then you couldn't grow again in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and we do, know, we do know that as you get older, the number of satellite cells 
as they are stem cells, just decline inside your muscle. And that's one of the reasons in conjunction with the declining testosterone levels, people find it harder to put on muscle mass as they get older. Um, there is a, uh, to your other questions, what is it that causes a satellite cell to become activated, to proliferate, to become a myonuclide proper? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, it seems to be that... Uh, the pathways of muscle growth are involved in doing that and it needs to be further elucidated as what why is it that what happens that causes that to happen and just the other way that the muscle fiber can grow is just that protein synthesis goes up and the fiber kind of expands in some of the other research it seems to be that once the fiber reaches a critical threshold growth beyond that point uh occurs via the myonuclei accretion um but what exactly is required specifically for that to happen needs to be i'd say further investigated um it'd be great if you could work that out because then you could sort of cause some really good muscle growth mm -hmm. um uh what was the first question again you asked was that uh oh uh so the, the older studies that just looked at satellite cell stuff that weren't specifically measuring myonuclei if someone were to go back and read them how how well would like group level changes in satellite cell stuff, d depending on what was actually measured, um, be a good long-term predictor of myonuclear accretion. Oh, right. Um, you'd see, well, in, in the atrophying studies, it seems to be that satellite cells do die off when a muscle atrophies, mm -hmm. um, but the myonuclei re retained. And because those old studies were just, when they, they, they didn't specifically use any microscopy work, they just looked at markers of nuclear degradation. And they always saw the signs of nuclear degradation. And so the conclusion was, ah, nuclei are going down, myonuclei are going down. But it, uh, now, nowadays, w with specific markers to look at each separate nucleus, they've seen the satellite cells do die off, um, but myonuclei don't. So I, I was thinking more like under hypertrophic conditions. So, you know, maybe two groups do two different training programs. What we see in the reasonably short term is changes in cross-sectional area are similar but one group had a larger increase in satellite cells. Um, would would that lead you, as someone who knows a lot more about this than I do, would that lead you to believe that the group that had the larger increase in satellite cells is probably going to get more myonuclear accretion and possibly more hypertrophy down the road? Or is just measuring satellite cells in the absence of actually measuring myonuclei, like, is that able to tell you that? Uh, I would say that, yeah, I think that if you saw the satellite cell number go up, then you'd then see myonuclei accretion. Um, if if the hypertrophic stimulus you're providing was sustained for long enough, because there's, this is, there's a time course for satellite cell donation. It's not just a, a switch that's suddenly turned on and two minutes later the satellite cell has become a myonuclei. It's, there seems to be a time course and a slow progressive change away from being a, a true satellite cell and becoming a true myonuclei. And so you could imagine that if you've got more satellite cells, then a great, if the hypertrophic stimulus is sustained, then a high percentage of those are going to start to transition into myonuclei proper. Uh, and you can see when anabolic steroids are given in the administration studies in humans, that the number of satellite cells go up. Um, and they then go back down 
after anabolic steroids as well. Um, so that sort of answers the question. Very cool. I did not know that. In studies I've seen that just measure satellite cells, I just, to this point, I've just kind of looked at that and shrugged and said, oh, that's cool. I, I didn't know that it was that straightforward that kind of like eventually they will become myonuclei and it just sort of takes a while. Yeah, if if the, if the I would say if the hypertrophic stimulus was sustained long enough. And it, in the uh, Ferrazzi Cady papers where they seem to believe that because of this, there's a ceiling to the size of the muscle fiber that mm-hmm. if the number of nuclei uh, stay the same, because there's a diffusion distance which uh, the proteins go f- away from the nucleus, there's a certain volume of which uh, that nucleus can provide proteins for that muscle fiber. And once that volume is maximized, uh, the fiber is not going to grow anymore uh, because the proteins can't diffuse any further. So the only way it's going to get bigger is if the satellite cells become myonuclei. So you could maybe think there's possibly a mechanism in which the cell can sense it's at max translational capacity and it's a maximum maximized these these volumes, these myonuclei. The ceiling has become close to being reached and then the pathway of growth starts to switch towards myonuclei accretion and that takes time. So if the, you'd assume if the hypertrophic stimulus was sustained enough, that would happen. And then it's then open up for those new nuclei to then make more proteins and then the whole cycle could potentially repeat itself. Um, one, one thing, Greg, that I, I did want to mention, uh, I remember we spoke about this, uh, not EP, EPC this year, but I think last year, mm-hmm. um, was uh, about the epigenetic memory of muscle oh, growth. Yeah, the Seaborn the study. Yeah, the Seaborn study from January 2018 was published in the Nature Reviews. He's actually published a lot more. That guy's got some really cool stuff. Um, but what I think is interesting is when we circle back to the whole lovely picture that Christian Gunderson has of myonuclei accumulation and then retention during atrophy and then those myonuclei causing enhanced growth. Um, that if that is if that is not the case because we've just got some contradictory evidence coming out in the scientific literature because of that it may well be that either way then the nuclei inside the fiber that are remaining during atrophy maybe they still have an epigenetic memory of, of muscle exposure anyway and so they can still result in an enhanced level of growth and this robert seaborn study you were talking about I think for the listeners was um, a great piece of research where they uh, had guys come for a single resistance training session. They then biopsied them after that. And then they then subjected them to a sustained resistance training program. And they then biopsied them at the end of that. And then they detrained them. So they did absolutely nothing. And then they biopsied them again at the end of that. And then they retrained them uh, for a period of time and then biopsied them again. And what they found in that study was... Uh, certain areas of uh, certain genes were opened up for expression that are to do with muscle anabolism even after one resistance training uh, session and then they then they remain open after sustained period of training and then when you stop training those areas that uh, don't fully close that are responsible for anabolism and then when you go back to training they open up even further and then result in an even higher expression of these genes that are involved in anabolism. And so even if the myonuclei retention theory is questionable because it maybe depends on the life cycle of a satellite cell turning into a myonuclei and maybe they're not fully retained after hypertrophy, 
still the regions of DNA inside those myonuclei that are exposed to the hypertrophic stimulus may remain open after that hypertrophic stimulus. And then when you go back to training, they can then become uh, reopened and uh, express their genes at an even better, higher level than they did in the past. Um, and that was that's an amazing piece of research. And what I would note with anabolic steroids is that there's never been a study that's looked at changes in the regions of the DNA being opened or closed because in humans because of anabolic steroid exposure and we're preserving the muscle inside a genetic preservative to look at that and I'm really excited about that personally because you might find that because the androgen receptor is binding to specific regions inside the DNA of these myonuclei causing them to make more proteins at a super physiological levels you'd theorize at the point of the biopsy when someone is in that state regions of their DNA for anabolism are going to be open uh, and could be totally different to someone who's never taken steroids before. And uh, if that research that I was mentioning about the proteins is indeed valid and those people had 80 different proteins even after 10 years of never taking steroids, then you definitely expect there to be some differences in what regions of the, of the, of the genome inside the muscle cell are being activated by the antigen receptor with super physiological levels. And then when someone goes off anabolic steroids and the receptor binding goes drops down to normal physiological levels, the question is now what happens to those regions of the DNA that were opened up? Do they close fully or do they remain slightly more open? And maybe that could result in a, in a higher level of anabolism uh, later down the line. Yeah, that, that, that's really interesting. That's a really good point. I mean, if you're seeing different proteins, one would assume that that might be related to epigenetic changes. Man, so you, you know a lot about just basic muscle physiology that I don't know. And it, it's one of those things that to me is like both fun and frustrating because I feel like every time I talk to you, I realize there's just so much more a that I don't know and B that just we as a species don't know about how our about how our muscles work. There's just so many very cool open questions. Um and I'd add I'd add, I'd add to that as well because I remember when we met at EPC two thousand eighteen and you told me about the Rossetti study in mice where they inhibited the mTOR pathway the which is uh, regarded as the ma main molecular switch for protein synthesis inside muscle the uh, mammalian target for rapamycin they chemically inhibited that so you'd assume that therefore that mice is not going to be able to grow muscle if its main molecular switch for mus muscle protein synthesis is turned off and then they gave those mice anabolic steroids but they still experienced muscle growth which is crazy so that means there's a redundant system mechanism inside muscle that anabolic steroids are able to activate that causes muscle growth uh, whereas in the other mice when they inhibited it they didn't experience any muscle growth exactly as you'd expect and I had no idea that that had gone on so there's uh, some big questions in terms of how anabolic steroids cause muscle growth that are just totally unanswered that we need to conduct more research on for sure so I, I think I think I'm just about out of questions um, related to this specific topic and in your research study that's currently ongoing. I do have one one final question for you, though. Um, again, mostly for, for my own personal benefit. Um, so something that I've probably spent way too much time and energy thinking about and still don't have a good answer to is like 
why in the absence of steroids or, or even with steroids, um, muscles eventually stop growing because like to this point, every study that's, you know, looked at muscle protein synthesis in trained lifters finds that, you know, their rates of breakdown at rest don't seem to be different from untrained people. You expose them to training. Eh, maybe the area under the curve for protein synthesis isn't quite as big when you're trained as untrained, but it's still maybe like a third as big or half as big. But, you know, you don't see someone who's been training for 10 years growing at a third the rate or half the rate as, as someone who's completely untrained. And eventually, like, we do all seem to kind of hit a wall at some point. And I haven't been able to yet identify, like, a really clear mechanism for why that would be the case. So, like... As someone who knows a lot more about muscle physiology than I do, can you think of any like potential targets for things that may be eventually capping muscle growth for people who are drug-free? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, I think if, if you sort of adhere to the myonuclease ceiling theory, then maybe it's just at some point the level of training that's required. So your fibers grow to this this size, a maximum size, then you get more myonuclei going in. And to then that that those cells will then grow to a bigger size. But then to get even more myonuclei to go in, maybe the level of training that's required for that is is so so high, or maybe it's just so the muscle then just doesn't want to add any more myonuclei into it. Uh then maybe there's a there's a there's a there's a limit to which this muscle cell wants to add myonuclei. Um, maybe because it gets to the point where it thinks this is not uh, economical to have this size of muscle mass uh, for calorie expenditure or something along those lines. Maybe, um, and even I think um, uh, I, another thing I think is quite interesting with sort of muscle growth is how many ribosomes somebody has mm -hmm. as well because even if the myonuclease is the unit that's responsible for for making these transcripts these these transcripts then have to bind to the ribosome to then get converted into protein and so that they're a potential limiting step into protein synthesis inside the muscle fiber and i didn't realize uh, that the number of ribosomes that somebody has can be inside them their muscle can potentially be genetically determined as um, people have difference in the number of gene number of copies of ribosomal genes they have in their dna and that might be one reason as to why some people grow more muscle quicker than other people when you expose them to the same resistance training stimulus mm -hmm. uh, so w why is it that some guys put on more muscle quicker than other guys when they're training the same if those guys that put on more muscle, they just have more ribosomes, and and that's as they've seen that in the literature, then that could be the reason to explain why. Is even if this the mechanical signal for hypertrophy is the same, the rate limiting step of making proteins. If there's just more ribosomes, then more proteins get made per unit time compared to someone that doesn't. So uh, maybe ribosomes have something to do with potentially how big somebody can get as well. Uh, and I, I'm not. I won't be surprised in the short period of time if these DNA testing companies that exist will try and 
get you to see how many copies you have for your <laughs> maybe your propensity to growth and maybe that's the way what well, i think this would be an amazing study if someone can go get the top ifbb pros get 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 their dna and then see how many how what their ribosomal copies are like because maybe some of the biggest dudes we've ever seen maybe they've got loads of ribosomes copies of ribosomes potentially um and maybe some other things you know they've got slight myostatin uh, mutations as well. Um, I don't know. What do you think? What do Alex, you think the reasons limit me. someone's growth? Alex, don't be coy. If you want me in your study, I'll do your study. <laughs> Just ask. Don't don't beat around the bush. It's embarrassing. I could send I could send you a saliva tube. I have some spare ones in the lab. Anytime. <laughs> well, Greg, what do you what do you think limits limits people's growth? Man, I, I don't know. Um, so. I think one potential thing uh, might just be energetic. So there's some research finding that uh, like people at baseline with with higher mitochondrial density then experience more hypertrophy. Um, a study in older people um, finding that, that folks with uh, greater capillary density experience more hypertrophy. And so like obviously muscle is pretty energetically costly um especially if if it's undergoing high intensity contractions and there's even i don't know if there's direct evidence for this but i've seen it at least proposed in the literature that when muscle fibers get too large um they can start have start having a problem like dealing with inorganic phosphate accumulation and that can affect um, contractile function, and so I, I'm I'm wondering if it's just a matter of like a surface area to volume ratio thing, where once muscle fibers get too big, it's very energetically costly to build more protein and just to maintain the fiber as it is. Um, mitochondrial density tends to drop, sometimes maintained, generally doesn't increase if it's just with resistance training. Um, capillary density per fiber tends to be maintained, but per unit of cross-sectional area tends to decrease. Um, and so like diffusion distance to like the median point in the fiber increases. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder if it's just that when fibers get too big, it, it ceases to make sense. Kind of like what you alluded to that maybe something is eventually just telling the fiber like it, it's no longer economical to get bigger and I, i'm thinking that that might yeah. be something related to, to energetics and oxygen delivery um an, another potential thing that could be going on is um it seems that the the point of uh mechanotransduction is the costumers and um focal adhesion kinase. And so that could also potentially be a surface area to volume ratio thing as well, because, you know, all of all of those protein complexes that seem to be what kicks off the mTOR pathway, those are all located on the outside of the cell and the surface area of the cell won't increase as, at the same rate as the volume of the cell will. And like, you know, all of the proteins and stuff are roughly synonymous with cell volume. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably 
It's some very basic level, just a surface area to volume ratio problem. And I'm not exactly sure whether it's, you know, the mTOR stuff or the energy stuff or both, maybe ribosome stuff. But the more I think about it, the more I think it's just a surface area to volume ratio problem. Mm. It's preventing everyone from getting super jacked. Yeah. I I mean, so uh, (laughs) a way to test that, I guess, would be to find people who very much seem to be plateaued and then one just see like whether there's kind of a common muscle size that folks attain um at at, at like not muscle like not muscle cross-sectional area but That's fiber true. cross-sectional yeah. area um and if there's not see if the variation in fiber cross-sectional area attained at a hypertrophic plateau is at any way related to muscle oxygen uptake such that people with, like, you would see similar scaled muscle oxygen uptake or greater mo- oxygen uptake per fiber in, in the larger fibers. Um, I think that's one way you could potentially get at it, but there's no direct research for any of that as far as I'm aware. Nah, uh, maybe if it could be sort of worded into some sort of grant on sarcopenia, that would be possible, <laughs> but... <laughs> Otherwise, it might never happen. Although, yeah, that would make sense if that's what you look for. What do you think, Eric? Well, um, I was going to say on the idea of doing that research, um, I believe that Ohio State's kinesiology department was bringing in a lot of high-level Arnold Classic competitors year after year to do a bunch of assessment. Ooh. Not, I don't know if they got the bodybuilders. I think they had the strong men coming in. Um but that would be like the perfect setup, right? If you get the whole bodybuilding lineup from from the Arnold Classic, you could answer a lot of really cool questions by just getting some pretty basic observational information from them. Um, get 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 Dexter Jackson, as that man is immortal. Did you hear that he won a professional bodybuilding show last week? Yeah, he won the Tampa Pro. I mean, he's had the most IFBB Pro wins of anyone ever. He's seventy three years old. He's winning the damn Tampa Pro. It's insane. <laughs> <laughs> it might maybe a win the, maybe i mean he's the olympia's only like a, what a month away that's so, what i said yeah i mean he maybe maybe number two for the blade that'd be cool that would be i mean how many years apart is that 11 year gap yeah between the first yeah. And second? <laughs> I know. It, was, it was 2008 god that would be so cool i'd be so happy that'd be amazing yeah dexter is an amazing bodybuilder he seems pretty cool uh that'd be really fun to see but on this idea of like, you know, what limits muscle growth and, you know, I, I would suspect that it is energetic in nature because at a certain point, the energetics associated with maintaining that degree of muscle mass are just insane. It's, it's hard to think of, of any biological rationale to justify that level of mus- muscularity. Evolutionally, that would make sense as well, because you maybe you'd never be able to support that kind of mass I mean, so the 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 thing that gets me is like, so I feel like that makes a lot of sense when I'm just thinking about it from the perspective of drug-free lifters. But then in the research that does exist on on people using steroids, like their muscles do get way, way bigger. And there doesn't seem to be just a tremendous decrease in in muscle function in any way that that we have been able to measure so like it 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 seems like it would eventually be an energetic issue but at least it i mean you 
bodybuilders do still function, you know, like it, that that's kind of my hang up with it. Do they? I mean, I, I haven't spent a lot of time with with like really high level bodybuilders that are like on drugs and stuff. I mean, have you ever walked up a staircase next to one? I haven't. I mean, like, so I, I'm thinking about this kind of from the perspective of, I guess, like someone who's incredibly out of shape and completely untrained. So, I mean, as as out of shape as pro bodybuilders may be, I mean, most most of them, or at least a lot of them, do still do a fair amount of cardio leading up to a show. And even like if you just if if you just look into the energetic costs of I don't know say squatting five hundred for a set of ten which I assume pretty much all of the IFBB pro guys can do like that requires a, a very very substantial amount of uh, like rate of energy expenditure to be able to pull that off um, and then if they were just severely severely out of shape. You know, they'd be on the ground for 30 minutes afterwards, which I, I, I mean, I at least get the feeling that they're in better shape than most power lifters who use anywhere close to the same amount of drugs on average. Um, and, and so, like, I don't know if if it's an energetic problem, if it was like a functional problem for them, then you would expect that you take someone who's ridiculously untrained and completely sedentary and have them start lifting and, you know, it would take them months to even begin to start growing just because it would take so long to get their muscles sufficiently conditioned to grow. Um, and that doesn't really seem to be what happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. We, we need smart people like Alex to figure it out. We need more administration studies. That's what would be kind of useful. Yeah. Yeah. We need to actually start doing this stuff directly uh despite the ethical hang-ups involved yeah but that uh, yeah i mean that, that so yeah the most i've ever seen in a study is, is 600 milligrams where they've given guys that for 20 weeks of testosterone and that's i don't know if it seems to be no one ever no one wants to do administration studies since the beginning early 2000s nowadays so uh, well understandably so because i mean it's you've got to question the potential risk to people's health um but there's still questions that need to be answered on how anabolic steroids cause muscle growth. And that's the most controlled way to do it. So, yeah, on the topic of like this upper limit and what's limiting muscle growth, one of the things that I, I always come back to when I think about it is the two physiques that kind of jump out in my mind are Flex Lewis and Ronnie Coleman. And it's like, let's say we figure out what this limiting factor is and let's further say that we have some kind of workaround that allows us to push this even further. I just can't even imagine what that looks like and how an individual who has meaningfully become more muscle bound than that goes about activities of daily living. <laughs> like it just starts to get to such an extreme level that you're like, how would that even work? What would it look like? Uh, it, it's just crazy to even think about. Um, but it, w it would be so cool if we if we could uh, kind of push our understanding of muscle physiology one step further and start start getting some concrete answers to that question. I mean, I, I'm thinking about it not from a how how do we make Ronnie bigger perspective, but more from a well, then start thinking about it that way. That's the funnest <laughs> way to think about that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, I, I'm thinking about it more from a perspective of like a non-negligible amount of drug-free lifters uh, just kind of wind up really disappointed in their results, especially if they grew up like idolizing folks who do do a lot of gear. Uh, and, and we've talked about um, just inherent variability and in how well people respond to training. And so I'm thinking about this less from the perspective of how do we make the freaks freakier and more from a perspective of, well, how can we make sure that most people can eventually get quite solid results, you know? Because I, I I would assume that, you know, whatever is limiting, say, the biggest drug-free bodybuilder's growth and whatever is limiting kind of the average trainee's growth is probably something pretty similar. It just took a lot longer to limit the bigger guy. And so that's that's kind of what, what the perspective I'm thinking about it from. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, Greg, you and I are just a couple of uh, internet keyboard warriors, but Alex has important work to do. Uh, we've taken about an hour and a half of his time. It's probably about time for him to uh, get back to solving the world's problems, uh, informing WADA decisions about doping and transgender athletes. So um, before we uh, end the interview here, Alex, is there a way that people can stay up to date with you and your work? Or do you want to give us your contact information for anyone who might be interested in participating in your study? Yeah, the best thing is if somebody emails me and Eric, I'll give you my email so you can put it in the description. Um, honestly, if you're on the fence about if you're a current user, you think you're in the midst of a blast around the end of October or you've just finished and you think, man, it'd be really cool to be monitored while I come off steroids, uh, then just come and talk to me. Equally, if you took steroids years ago and you're either on a genuine TRT dosage now or you've not not, not taking anything, then definitely get in touch with me and we can continue the conversation further. Um, also, if anyone's just listened and they think this is an interesting research study, uh, the best way I've managed to find participants has been through social media. And so uh, if you just search on Facebook, Alex KT Muscle Memory, you'll see I've got a public post that can be very easily shared that's got details of the study. Uh, and the same, I have a, I've made an Instagram account. It's just got one single post about the study that can easily be shared. And that's uh, Alex um, underscore K underscore T. And the same thing, I'd, I'd greatly appreciate anyone who does share the advert uh, because you never know who's going to see it. And uh, social media has proven the best way for me to find people. Um, so thank you if you uh, decide to share my advert. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I think our audience is really going to enjoy this this interview. A lot of really cool information about muscle physiology. Uh, we're really excited to uh, to keep an eye out for your findings and, and to see you know all the work coming out of your lab in the future. It's going to be really exciting. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.